0: Three, two, one, and we're back with the Philip Duff Show. Tuning in live from DC, Derek Brown. Derek, man, we've already said the whole how are you doing stuff, but you know, how are you doing this morning, really? <laughs> I'm
1: doing really well, actually. I'm, I'm just a little bit under the weather, I will say that. So I'm drinking some tea here, um, which is helping me. It's perking up my spirits.
0: I, I too am under the weather, uh, possibly for different reasons. Uh, <laughs> I have some delightful uh, sparkly soda water. I just think about having a glass of Prosecco, but it wouldn't be really the uh, the correct vibe. <laughs> well, it's also 10 a.m. So yeah, even, I mean, even I have some standards and I have some uh, cocktails at the King Cole Bar this evening to look forward to. So uh, no need to start quite so early. Well, what if you put peach puree
1: in it and then, they, then you have vitamins with it, too? Maybe you could justify that.
0: Oh, yeah. The whole uh, healthy drink thing. I always think it's hilarious when you see someone, their cocktail menu is like, oh, we've we're using adaptogens and, you know, we've got nootropics in here. I'm like, did you take the ethanol out? Because.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because I think that, you know, there's a lot of this kind of movement towards people, um, you know, just general knowledge about health. But it's really funny how in that there's a lot of, you know, kind of misconceptions to about what is healthy and what is not and certainly like when somebody you know packs their cocktail full of you know i don't know spinach leaves and b12 vitamins it 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 could be a little healthier but at the same time you're right i mean alcohol itself you know for for what it is is probably not healthy for you generally <laughs> although there are some social aspects of that that we could get into so certainly uh, you can live a healthy lifestyle that incorporates alcohol for
0: sure so Derek just for anybody who might not know can you give our listeners the Derek Brown 101 the wild ride that has taken you to the pinnacle of your profession meaning <laughs> being on my podcast Yeah exactly
1: um no this is the this is the top um well I started working in bars and restaurants when I was about 16 years old and at the same time I had left my house so this is where I grew up this is uh this was my um, you know, sort of college and graduate school at the same time. It was where I learned how to drink. It was where I learned how to think about the world in many ways. Obviously, you're imprinted from a young age, but um, when you're in your teens, that's when you really start to form your strongest opinions about who you are, what you're going to be. And that's when I was in the restaurant and bar industry And and how lucky for me in a way, because it's, you know, I love that Anthony Bourdain line about how it's just like this band of misfits, you know, and and we all get together and we kind of connect over that. Um but also it's kind of complicated because, you know, when you're 16 and you're learning how to drink from, you know, old grizzled line cooks and and lifetime waitresses. It's sort of <laughs> wonderful human beings, but maybe the the only rule that they gave was show up to your shift on time. Um and I was faithful to that. But but we can get into more details of that later. I think that, you know, from there, I didn't know that that was going to be my profession until I started bartending. And that's when I really fell in love with this world, this whole world, you know, the band of misfits, the alcohol, the creativity behind it, the social aspects of it, every single thing behind it was just Lovely to me. It was like it, it felt like home in many ways, and um, that carried me into this career where I, I uh, got to learn about classic cocktails and I got to learn about bartending from the 19th century and everything that was so cool back then when we were talking about speakeasies and um, you know that sort of I don't know second or third wave of, of uh, bartending that came about after Dale DeGroff and Tony Abucanam and Audrey Saunders and all of that. Um, and it was a great, really exciting time. And I learned so much and I'm so grateful for it. Um, but I also at the same time, you know, continued to drink in a way that was, um, was not healthy for me. And that led me to a place where, you know, I was growing a lot. I was learning so much. I was learning from people like you, honestly, there were so many people in this industry that had taught me about the history of cocktails, the history of your neighbor, the history of um, all of these great spirits and drinks. Um, but I didn't spend enough time thinking about me and my own relationship with alcohol. And that came a little bit later. So I don't know if we want to get into the the, the, the dirty now, but I, I I just wanted to start there and say, like, it was a really great start to this industry, but it started very young and it had some complications
0: there. It's an interesting one. I talk very frequently uh, and disparagingly about large drinks companies um, mm-hmm. not being able to innovate. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's really because they were taken over by, shall we call it, an MBA culture. Yeah. And one of the aspects of that culture is, you know, ruthless efficiency and cost cutting. So, did you ever see the TV series Mad Men?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, every company, not just a drinks company, used to have a Roger Sterling. Mm-hmm. And it was usually the CEO's alcoholic younger brother. Yeah. Right and he would have a title like you know head of client development or something but what he really was and it was usually an old white guy was a schoolmaster he would take these young college graduates and teach them how to you know go out and entertain clients and introduce them to major d's and escort ladies and bartenders and stuff like that and of course they're all gone now yeah so we don't learn and it's such even if you don't drink I tend to think that you need to know about drinking and about how bars work, and you know, for the business aspects and how alcohol works. You know, it's it's you, you could be a ten-year pro bartender and not really understand how it affects your body. <laughs> I think that's
1: really critical. I, I love that that you share that because I think that that's a big part of what my focus in life now is to. Teach, teach people how to drink, you know, because I think there's so many wonderful aspects to this culture and it's important to embrace those, but it's also important to realize that some of us, it's not for us. I mean, alcohol just doesn't work with us for, for whatever reason. And, and there's lots of, lots of reasons, but, and then for some people, they just need a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of help to understand what the ramifications might be. And obviously, you know, since you had a, a holiday party, Last night you probably are feeling the ramifications right now, which are very immediate. So in some ways we do know what the ramifications are, but but there's longer term you know issues and and certainly you know, I think that some of us get stuck in either peer pressure or habit or conformity, and we feel like we have to go along with it. And part of this growth of mindful drinking that I've been a part of, that I'm lucky to be a part of, is to say there's options there are options and that's uh those options can be you know drinking alcohol drinking a little alcohol drinking no alcohol mixing it all up making sure that you are drinking in relationship to your goals that's the big part for me because it's not that you should drink i don't preach abstinence i don't preach moderation in fact i would say I don't, in a weird way, I don't care how anyone else drinks. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, What I care about is providing options for people to make choices for themselves, which I think is really the critical part of it. And that's, that's where I think a little education comes in. Those choices are not really, uh, if they, if there's not an education behind them, that those choices probably aren't always the best for their own goals.
0: Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a beautiful passage I read once in one of his detective novels by Robert B. Parker, and uh, his his protagonist kind of struggled with drinking and had got it under control, you know, with rigid discipline. And he's talking about having the first drink of the evening and how perfect it is, you know, and then he makes a second drink and he said the second one was pretty good, but it wasn't the first one. The first one wouldn't be available again until tomorrow. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's a wonderful way to look at it. I mean, I, you know, cocktails themselves are an ephemeral art, you know, they're created, we drink them, they're gone. You know, I I love that about them. And I think it's really important to embrace that. Um, But also cocktails don't have to have alcohol. You know, I think that's one of the cool things that I've really discovered. I mean, you know, going, dipping a little deeper into my past, when I have this sort of crisis, like when I recognize that that you know I, I was in some ways apart from this moment where i'm on the uh, on the philip duff show the the apogee of my career you know when i was like winning awards and i was being recognized as one of the top bartenders and you know i was physically at my worst um and my relationships were all trash to be honest with you um and financially i wasn't in the best place i i really just had all of these Sort of negative outcomes, and a lot of them were not from alcohol. I just want to clarify that they were tied to alcohol because I hadn't addressed aspects of my mental health. I think you know this. A lot of people know this. Our industry, one in five people have a mental health issue, and I think uh, I think it's really important to to recognize that and understand that that for me was the cause of alcohol was a salve for that. It was my way of dealing with my mental health. Um, so there was a that double punch of, I never really learned that I shouldn't drink like that or that I should, you know, be more mindful of the way I drink. And I had these mental health issues and, and it put me in a place where even though I I theoretically should have been in this really wonderful, you know, place, I wasn't, I was, I was feeling terrible. And when I recognized that there was this moment, you know, like I had to make a change, I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, this is all I know. You know, like this is. I've studied, like, you know, how the, the history of the the Manhattan. You know, like I read Phil Green's book, you know, cover to cover. I I went on Library of Congress. I tried to find the details myself. What was I going to do now? Tell people like, don't drink. You know, it, it was it was a silly thing. But at the moment, I had a a crisis, and I was trying to figure out how I would how I would deal with that. And when I learned that it really was the crisis was in my mind, that that all along, all I've been ever saying was drink better, right? That there's these great uh, cocktails, whether it's a well-made Manhattan or a a perfectly balanced daiquiri, or it's a non-alcoholic cocktail. It's about drinking better in the sense that providing better options, providing these wonderful cocktails with or without alcohol. And so when I got to that point, that's when I really took off again. I found my second wind in this industry, and I realized like there there are a lot of people. I thought I was gonna I thought I was gonna encounter a lot of pushback. Honestly, I thought people were gonna be like, "You're an asshole!" Like you you were you were you were saying how you should drink this great overproof rye. Now you're saying don't drink at all. And I suppose if I had gone hard on the other side, maybe that would have made me a hypocrite or an asshole. But, but instead, when I just shared my story and I told people how I felt, I, I was embraced by so many people in our community because they've seen the ravages of alcohol and they understand mental health issues are rampant within our uh, industry. And so that there's a need to um, share those stories and to connect to one another and, and be protective of the people who
0: need help. Well, just to jump in on mental health for a minute, you actually did qualify as a a trainer and a professional, yes.
1: So, I uh, my experience with mental health, besides my own, is all peer related. I, I I studied um, positive psychology at uh, uh, UPenn, and I have you know some certifications in um, wellness. Uh, counseling and, and uh, mental health first aid, but 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 I'm not a therapist and I'm not an expert in mental health uh, only in my
0: own. But the statistic you quoted, one in five. How do we compare to other industries then? If we're talking about one in five in hospitality, what's it like in the carpentry world or the world yeah. of high finance?
1: Are we yeah, better? Are we worse? We're we're at the tippy top. We're near the very top. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. Uh, both in um, substance issues and mental health issues and uh, uh, quality of life, just reporting the quality of life. um, It's pretty low, but I think we know why, you know, and I, and I think we know why it's because this is a wonderful industry driven by passion. Um, And very often people will work themselves to the bone, you know, that there is this uh, drive to achievement. It happened in the Columbia room, and I, I know it happens in a lot of bars, especially this, you know, kind of world 50 best culture. You know, people are are really striving to be excellent. And I, I love that. I want that to be true. But at the same time with that excellence, sometimes there comes this push to, to work harder, to work longer, to ignore your health, to ignore your need to relax and to just be um and to and to step outside of the culture, too, we can't everything we do can't involve alcohol. We have to have other healthy pursuits. I mean, um I think when I was at that point i, I also used to joke in my this is my brother's joke, but I took it that um without alcohol, I wouldn't have a career friends or, or a hobby. you know, they were also they're also interrelated. and so you know, finding space outside of that is really important um but also, it's a industry that has low margins. It's an industry that has, um, you know, we we subsidize customers so much. You know, where the the co- the real costs of what is happening is not always um, put on the customer. It's generally put on the staff, where it has been historically, and I think that's starting to shift. Um, but you know, I, I when I really look at how I price cocktails and I price things food when I worked at restaurants. The people who bared the brunt of the cost were the staff, not the customers.
0: What do you mean when you say bore the brunt?
1: I mean, so they went without health care. They went with lower wages. They went with um, longer shifts. They went without breaks. They went without um, adequate staffing. So, you can take something that a cocktail that rightfully costs twenty two dollars, charge fourteen dollars for it and say, "Okay, you know, that's that's what people are willing to pay." and it and, and and I know that there's a give and take, and it's a market. you know, i'm not I'm not trying to change that market. I'm not a socialist per se. I, all I'm trying to suggest is that there needs to be some equity equity, equity. what's is that the right word? Equity. Yeah, there. It's definitely worth. I think that, you know, we have that customers in bars and restaurants have to realize that this this stuff is expensive. You know, it's what's the there's that um, there's a really great quote about how cocktails like motor cars or poems are troublesome and expensive to make. That's by Kingsley Amos. And I think that's true. Um, But the cost needs to be uh, shared. You know, it can't be just all on the staff who are, are working there. is off to get to a place where, um, you know, it, their quality of life is just not what it should be.
0: Well, it's, uh, we've kind of gone sideways into this, but it's a very good discussion. I had um, Mark Maynard on recently, and Mark did like 30 years, his entire hospitality career working for Danny Meyer. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we were talking about the cost of stuff because cocktails are now like $22 is not an uncommon price for a cocktail in New York anymore. And him being even more of a restaurant and kitchen guy is like, yeah, Phil, I go out. I see $30 plates of food and I know that that is not a $30 plate of food, if you see what I mean. I say I, I would like to think that the extra cost is going to the staff. I don't know that it is. Right. Right. And I think the law of the market, you know, pushes you in a certain way. And America's always been a freewheeling place. It's like, we'll get our own health care. Like, I remember <laughs> after Obamacare passed, um, I, well, I've been visiting America for a long time, even before I moved here. And suddenly you could get health care for about 500 bucks a month. Yeah. Right. Which, had, um, shitty health care, but still. And I remember talking to an extremely famous female bartender, uh, who was still bartending uh in New York City at the time. And I'm like, This is the this, you know, this is the best, right? And making, she was probably making between bartending and, and gigs, somewhere between 80 and 100000 dollars a year. And I said, So which healthcare are you gonna get? And she's like, I'm not getting healthcare. I'm like, but you should, you know, it's it's good to have it. And she says, Yeah, but you see, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm healthy. Um All right. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I don't think you understand how insurance works here. <laughs> you know, there, there, there is that idea that, oh, we'll take care of it ourselves. We'll make loads of money. And you don't need an overarching socialist government, but some policies in place. Like if the government, we we trust the government to bargain on our behalf with defense contractors so you get aircraft carriers bills, they might be able to bargain with all the healthcare people. So that hasn't yeah, exactly happened yet, but... <laughs> But
1: but I like, you know, describing that culture where, you know, you feel like there's this eternal youth in bartending, you know, that I think one of the interesting things is, this uh, at one point I was talking to somebody about why this shift, right? Why have we seen this tremendous shift in uh, bartenders talking about non-alcoholic and low alcohol cocktails? Part of that, you could say, is there's a trend, there's a health aspect of it, people are starting to... You know, connect to that, and um, it's become an important part of it. Also, part of it's just exciting to learn a, an entirely new way to approach cocktails. But part of it is also that some of those bartenders that were very young when the classic cocktail revival started are not young anymore, right? <laughs> like I'm 49 years old, right? I mean, I'm no longer um, a young bartender. I started in my 20s and so i thought i was going to live forever then and you know as i got older and i started to feel the passage of time and i have a son and you know i i have a house and all that stuff i i realized i need healthcare i realized i need to pay attention to my mental health i realized that sometimes i shouldn't drink so much so so part of the whole shift is in my mind i we've seen you know the bartenders that, that kind of started this whole movement, so to say, are, are just older now. And so they're making different decisions about how they drink and what they'd like to drink.
0: Yeah, so did you, this is going to sound silly, I probably should know the answer, uh, have you yourself given up drinking? Uh, I have, but I haven't said never,
1: right? So when I uh, started addressing my the way I drank that was a great door for me to open up and talk about mental health and 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 that's when I started um studying uh from the National Academy of Sports Medicine on um wellness coaching that's when I started going to youpend to study positive psychology that's when I started getting therapy that's when I started taking therapeutic drugs medication nutrition I really started to just focus on improving myself and my life um, and during that time I didn't drink, um, but for a while I actually drank a little bit, uh, I drink maybe two cocktails a month and, um, I found that. Okay. That was okay for me because I realized that, you know, I didn't have what we, you know, colloquially refer to as alcoholism. You know, I had alcohol use disorder, but I didn't have this sort of lifelong alcoholism. I, I was able to drink and stop after one drink, um, It was more that alcohol served, as I said, like a salve, as a medicine for me. And so when I wasn't well, that's what I needed to get through the day. And so when all that changed, I was drinking two drinks a month for a while. And then in 2019, uh, a friend of mine, her father had passed away. And we used to talk about wine together because I was a sommelier before I was a bartender. Mm -hmm. uh, as a sommelier before I was a craft cocktail bartender. I was a bartender before as a sommelier, but that was in a different era when when we didn't really talk about craft cocktails. So, um, that what, what's what, what's it, it, I think Jeffrey Morgan calls it black shirt bartending, right? When we used mm-hmm. to all wear black shirts and uh, yeah. the, the lemon and lime were mixed together in a sour mix and so forth, but um that was another era. But anyway, so it was 2019, and my my friend's father had passed away, and we used to talk about wine together. And he sent me, uh, he, she sent me a bottle from his um, from his uh, cellar, which was a, a 1982 Lafite Rothschild, um, one of the finest Bordeaux in the world, one of the best vintages to date, and a perfect time to drink it. And so I drank that uh, with my partner Maria, and we, I think we drank it over Chinese food, and it actually worked really well. <laughs> and it was fantastic. And I, as soon as I finished it, I thought, "That's it. That's all I want to do for now. I, I that's the height. Like I don't think I'm going to drink anything better for a while. I don't think like um you know like um that anyway. I, I was going to start go rambling about cocktails I did and didn't want to drink, but but the point is that that was enough for me. And I stopped and I said, well, I'll drink again when I feel like it. And I haven't felt like it since. Because I've been also really excited about all of these non-alcoholic options. That's another part of it is that I became kind of re-enchanted with bartending by learning about all of these non-alcoholic spirits because it presented a brand new challenge to me right? Like they don't taste like alcohol. They don't taste like alcohol for a very obvious reason because they don't contain alcohol, right? That's one of the funniest things is that people are like, this doesn't taste like alcohol. You're like, of course not, because it doesn't have it. Um, But I think that we really do want to enjoy adult sophisticated drinks that have some of the same um, sort of organoleptic, you know, characteristics as, as alcohol. You know that has some of the same sensory characteristics. And um so f- bridging that gap, you know, trying to create cocktails that have that are adult sophisticated drinks that taste to some degree like cocktails with alcohol. I think that was an exciting thing for me. And it was like learning anew. So I got an opportunity to really think about how I would do that and, and kind of create my own theory, which is why I uh, came up with this book, Mindful Mixology, A Comprehensive Guide to No-Low Alcohol Cocktails, available by Rizzoli Books, thirty-nine ninety-five.
0: Great holiday present. Plug bear. Holidays just <laughs> around the corner, everybody. Get, get your old Uncle Derek's book. You, you could kind of give it passive-aggressively to somebody you think is drinking a bit too much, you know, the way you leave deodorant on somebody's desk if they're smelly. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. A perfect gift for your drunk
0: uncle. That's it, perf. That's it, that's the tagline. That's going to be the internet <laughs> <laughs> the internet advert. Yeah, I mean, dry January's around the corner and I do it. I kind of failed somewhat last year. Uh, we had a trip to Italy in the middle of it. But when I've done my 30 days or whatever it is, I typically have all my medical scans, etc., and my physical on the 1st of February. And then I go and I get hammered at lunch. Yeah. And that first cocktail that I'm ordering... I have a very strange relationship to it. I look at it and I'm like, I don't need this. I want it. But do I really want it? I've, I've kind of, uh, not last year, the year before last, I kind of had to force myself to have it. Like when you were having two drinks a month, how were you doing it? Were you like making an, an occasion of it? As, oh, on Tuesday, I'm going to have a martini. Or did it just roughly happen that you wanted two drinks a month? Like how did how did you structure that?
1: Let's say it roughly happened. I mean, I think that I would be out with somebody and there wouldn't be any other options. And I'd say, OK, well, I'm going to have, um, you know, gin and tonic or something or or I'll have a glass of wine. And so um, but but I have to say one of the things that you do realize, and I'm sure that this happened to you as well. And it happens to almost everybody after they take a month or a couple of months off is that alcohol is very strong. I mean, it's part of the allure of it, no doubt but it's also, it, it it's such an intensely flavored molecule. It's such a aromatic molecule that like if you've given it up for a while and you go back to it, it's like, whoa, that's, that's intense. And so I think that um, that's another factor of it is that you ask yourself, do I want to keep Drinking something so intense, um, even though with non-alcoholic cocktails we try to replicate some of the aspects, it never goes that far. It's you know, al- alcohol is a magic molecule, and what it does is unique. It doesn't. There's there's no other substitute for that yet. I mean, I suppose in the future we'll have this sort of Star Trek synthanol, and that'll exist. But but for now, now, we have no replicant. But but an interesting part of that is that sometimes, and and to your point about forcing yourself to drink it. When I talk about non-alcoholic cocktails, I say there's certain characteristics that sensory characteristics that are important, right? And those are piquancy or that bite, the intensity of flavor, uh, a certain texture, a certain length, which is really just the volume that's not taken up by juice or sugar, right? Um, But if I was to say that there's one thing that characterizes a non-alcoholic cocktail or any cocktail, it's stopping power there's something in that drink that by itself you probably would not drink right so if it's just pure ethanol you probably won't drink it but if you take that ethanol you put it in a barrel and you age it for a period of time then it's lovely right so so uh, but but there's still an element of it that's completely not undrinkable because people certainly drink you know high proof ethanol but but it, it, that stopping power is a critical component of any cocktail. So when we make non-alcoholic cocktails, it has to involve some aspect of that. It could be something intensely bitter, something with a lot of ginger, something with, you know, um, something that you would not drink by itself or you probably should not drink by itself.
0: Well, it goes back to the heart of what cocktails are. You are trying to make something palatable. Right. And cocktails were not always sophisticated. Like one of the first uses in print was in the early 1800s. Uh, and it said that a a Kentucky breakfast was three cocktails and a chew of tobacco. And we are not talking about, you know, lovingly stirred Manhattans here. It was hard liquor to jumpstart your system. Have you read the book Drunk by Dr. Edward Slingerland? Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a, it's a brilliant book. He was on the podcast, too. Oh, cool. And um. We, it was very funny. We were both having a drink because it was evening time in Vancouver and I think it might have been the afternoon here in New York. Um, but he actually followed his own precepts. He, I I think I had some kind of a cocktail. He was drinking Mezcal and we were about an hour in and he said, okay, now I should switch to wine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because for anyone who hasn't read the book, uh, it's a history of civilization through alcohol, really, from a distinguished professor of Chinese studies and philosophy. And... His statements, and I don't think it's something you can actually argue with, is we're not built for distilled liquor. Mm-hmm. Us, us humans are built to metabolize beer and wine and not even beer and wine as strong as it gets these days. Yeah,
1: yeah. he argues this sort of mismatch theory, right? The idea that we, you know, I mean, when we're talking about alcohol, humans are obviously capable of consuming alcohol and it's inner, it's interwoven into our evolution. I mean, it's really, we have evolved with alcohol and to be able to process it in a way, but it's this mismatch between the amount or alcohol by volume is really the difference, right? I mean, obviously wine, you know, even if it's like really juicy Shiraz from Australia is going to be 16%, um, it's 17%. People are like, Whoa, that's too much. But, um, you know, I, I was drinking, I know you drink sometimes you know high proof liquor that's 60 percent um that's that's probably not exactly what we evolved to do. that's the argument that Dr. Singleton is making and and uh, a mismatch. I think it's a really powerful argument. I think it goes for a lot of things in our culture. There's a lot of things that have you know t- take a big Mac, for instance, you know there's obviously a lot of issues. In our culture, around um, overeating and eating unhealthy food, and you know, but but a Big Mac is good, you know what I mean? And, <laughs> I'm a quarter we, pounder man. Yeah, but were we ever evolved to eat that something so luxurious? I don't know. So that's part of the mismatch too. I think it's a it's an interesting theory for sure, and and one that I that I I think is is definitely um, definitely worth kind of understanding and looking into.
0: Yeah, something occurred to me the other night um you know of course about all the, the christmas pop-ups the miracles and, and whatnot well i was at one in brooklyn the very excellent sunday in brooklyn which becomes snow day in brooklyn and every drink is served out of a unicorn's ass or it's on fire or <laughs> it's served out of a unicorn's ass on fire or it, it, it's amazing like think yeah. of the most over-the-top thing and double it right yeah. amazing cocktail menu and over-the-top decor and everything and we had a fantastic time shout out to Brian Evans for looking after us uh, we were walking after that to a whiskey festival so it was far from a sober day and it occurred to me everybody at every table was drinking cocktails with dinner mm mm-hmm. interesting yeah and cuz cocktails originally obviously became this elegant pre-dinner ritual uh mm-hmm. and even Ian Fleming himself a you know an alcoholic uh had his Bond character saying, I never have more than two drinks before dinner, but they must be very large, very cold, and very strong. Uh, And I'm watching all these people, you know, cocktail after cocktail after cocktail with dinner. And the only time I think that's ever been a thing in restaurant culture before was actually tiki restaurants. Yep. Where instead of having uh, wine or whatever it was you might drink with dinner, um, you drank cocktails through dinner.
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely. And and I have to say that that's one of the things that I think is a great challenge of our time is that not only are cocktails pervasive, our fault, in part, you and me, yeah. and, everybody, <laughs> and I don't mean I don't mean we're really at fault, but I mean, we've made these delicious cocktails. So, of course, people want to drink them. But um but we also see them everywhere now, right? So you go to a movie theater where before it was always soda and and popcorn. Not to say soda is that much better, but um, and now it's like you can get cocktails and pretty good cocktails at certain movie theaters. People have um, alcohol with yoga, you know. That people have alcohol um, at PTA meetings. I mean, for God's sake,s it's it's just pervasive. Actually, not. PTA meetings, but PTA, like, fundraisers. So it's become so pervasive that it's Mm -hmm. hard to get away from, actually. Um, And so it's a lure because people want alcohol. Um, And so it becomes a part of every activity we do. And I think that that's a big problem. Um, I think that it definitely should be reserved for, you know, certain occasions. I think it's better that way. Um, And drinking drinking with dinner is a... With food is a really good thing generally, but but um you know strong cocktails can be uh you know an impediment to enjoying your dinner, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I mean, I regret to inform you, I went to my local CVS last week, they were selling at the register uh 14% ABV malt liquor espresso martinis. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's so that's okay uh, that's a, a speedball. A speedball, yeah. Essentially, (laughs) that's
1: you know, there. Caffeine and alcohol are 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 a hell hell of a combination. That that is definitely something that I'm not anxious to get back to if I ever drink again, which I'm open to. um, That will not be the one that I start off with uh, for sure. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think that you know this all goes back to that aspect of mindful drinking. You know, I mean, mindful drinking is really just again connecting the way you drink with your goals and for some of us we can have these nights w- which are where we we indulge a little bit more um, because it's a special occasion because there's a special bottle of wine because you know uh, it's a celebration it's a um yeah. you know we're uh, com- communion with somebody we're connecting with somebody but but ultimately you know we can't do that all the time and so we have to kind of choose how we drink like because it creates a brain fog it creates um some challenges about uh, the way that we move in the world i mean even if you have just one or two drinks it can really affect you the next day even if you don't f- feel hungover there are after effects that happen and i th- recognizing that you can kind of determine how you're going to drink and i think that there's also options to find you know um to To have a non-alcoholic cocktail, have a cocktail, have a low alcohol, and just kind of mix it up, which I, is, is one thing that I really preach is to, if anything, is to just have choices. So, um, but I think, you know, going back to dry January, which is right around the corner, it's a great opportunity for people to really think about how they drink because – now there are so many choices. When I started doing Dry January it was when I, I was actually drinking a lot. And it was a little bit of a um, a reprieve for me. And I think I first wrote about it in 2016 for the Washington Post. I wrote something about Dry January and why I did it. And in that article, I said sobriety is like the cold of night. You know what I mean? Like I was trying to suggest that there's like You know, I do it because it takes me away from the parties. It takes me away from all the, you know, activities. It takes me away from social life and gives me the opportunity to reset for just because from Thanksgiving to New Year's is a a march of drinks, you know, like there's just so much going on. Um, But now I have a really different opinion of that. I don't think of, you know, not drinking as not fun. I think about it as something that you can really um still be social. You can still go out. And I'm so glad that bars are embracing this. You mentioned Brian Evans. I mean, he's a master at non-alcoholic cocktails. Some of his non-alcoholic cocktails are among the best, you, best out there. Um, and I think that, you know, there's so many options with that, that, you know, during dry January, you can go out and still have a great time. Um, and you don't have to drink alcohol; it's optional. But also, you you mentioned something. You said you failed at Dry January, right? But but here's what I would say: there is no failure in Dry January, right? Because it really is just what you determine it to be. So I suppose if you wanted to go all month without drinking alcohol and you didn't, then that would be a failure. But but for for what I suggest to people is that they try it and just you know, if, if at one point they drink during it, just go back to not drinking. It's not, it's not like a, it's not like a big thing. It's not a religion. It's not a, you know, religious practice. It's not about purity. It's about just finding the space to determine how you want to drink going forward, which I think is a really good thing. And also celebrating you now non-alcoholic cocktails. Um, one more point that I'd like to throw in there is I think that social wellness is so important to us. And, and, um, Dr. Slingland talks about this too, how um, alcohol can facilitate that. But social wellness is a critical part of our health, more important than almost anything we do. And so it it's important not to just kind of hide out in a you know in a corner drinking soda water, but to be out there in the world and connect with people with or without alcohol. And I think during January that can be you know just as important as any other time of the year.
0: Yeah, it is very true and you know in this business especially if you're at the level that you are or perhaps that I am there are parties every night there are events every night there is meeting clients and stuff uh and it can feel overwhelming yeah it really can yeah i think that you know it's also true that
1: you can't party every night you know that you have to you have to find your time to be at home cook a meal Enjoy time with your family or by yourself. I think those are really those really good things. We got to recover, you know. Like I, you can't just always be out. I, that was what that was part of what I did too. You know, like when I was younger, I always wanted to be out there. Now, you know that that was um, what do they call it? Um, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Now yeah. I have, I have JOMO. I have the joy, joy of
0: missing out. Of missing out.
1: <laughs> so so there's nights that I'm so, so happy to like read a book um, to like, you know, just cook myself a meal, spend time with my family. Um, part of that's being older, but part of that's, I hope, being wiser too.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed uh, last week or the week before I took two or three days off drinking. And then one night I, I got, I poured myself a, a bit of whiskey. And I got into bed and I read my book and I fell asleep and I woke up the next morning and I felt like, shit. And this was like, you know, it wasn't a large drink. It wasn't a cocktail. But in just three days off, my body had reset enough that that would hit me hard.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, look, I mean, as we started out, alcohol is not healthy for you by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, neither is ice cream, technically, right? I mean, but it's good to enjoy ice cream on a birthday it's good to enjoy alcohol in in a way that again meets your goals and and i think that like absolutely if you take time off it becomes kind of more challenging to go back so i i guess the goal is not to force yourself to go back but to to try to um you know recognize how your body feels how you want it to feel cuz cuz that's when when i talk about choice i think people sometimes say oh you're you mean choosing between no alcohol low alcohol, choosing um, what brand, and and that is part of it. But ultimately, for me, it's choosing how you want to feel. Right. And I think that that's a really important thing for me is because, you know, when I changed the way I drank, I felt better for me. Um, And I was able to address aspects of my life that I had really never addressed before. I didn't know It's so hard to imagine, but a grown ass man who didn't know anything about nutrition, anything about health, anything about movement, all that stuff. I was just kind of the best. I maybe stuff I had read in an article here or there, but I wasn't really very knowledgeable about it. And I think this is really important for bartenders and any of you listening out there in hospitality land is, you know, like you have to take care of yourselves. Um, and that doesn't mean drinking or not drinking. That's not the, the only part of it. It's also like recognizing the need to take care of your body and to take care of your mind and to take time to recover and take time to heal from, you know, bartending's hard work is really hard work. I couldn't do it anymore. Could you, can you bartended last night? I mean, I know that the alcohol has its ravages, but what about just like making all these drinks? It's hard, right?
0: Yeah. I don't I, I don't do guest bartending um, anymore, but that's actually not the reason. The reason is if you do guest bartending, you basically don't get to talk to the people who've come to see you because you are too busy making drinks. So instead, I will do something called An Evening with Philip Duff where the bartenders do what they do best and I go around and talk to people. And even that's exhausting because you're going from person to person to person. Maybe it's your first time meeting all of them. But it's still, you know, five six hours on your feet.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It is. It is really exhausting. The 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 sort of emotional labor, as they call it, just like interacting with people, and especially like when you're interacting with strangers. You know, um, people say weird shit. I mean, people get weird all the time. I I remember once in the early days of my bar, bartending career, there. were this woman that used to come in, and she was probably about late 60s, and she would sit down and she would, um like, scare everybody off from the bar until it was just her at the bar, just her and me. And then she would lean into me and she'd say, she's Australian, she'd say, you know, I used to be a nude model, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, God, that's, I don't want to hear that, I don't care about that, you've literally just scared off all my customers, so one night, uh, so so one night, I got sick of it. I was done with it. I couldn't believe that this person was like taking all my money every single. So I I, I sat down with her. and I said, "I'm sorry if I'm the first person to say this to you, but you are very annoying. You know, like, and, and everybody around you leaves because of the things you say." And she gave me this, read me this, kind of like, "I'm older, I'm wiser." And I said, "Ah, no, you're banned. You're, you're banned. You can't come back." Um, but but just a person that theoretically has lived and should know better and is behaving like that. And that's the, probably the, one of the nicer, you know, people that come to the bar sometimes having to deal with that is just can be a lot. So you got to take care of your mind. you got to, you know, make sure that you, you know, uh, take time to recover from just that, from the social aspects of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you revel in, that as a young bartender. You love, it. I love it. I love going out. It's a party every night. I get, like I get paid for this. Mm-hmm. But you do change, obviously, as you age. We're, we're of a similar age, and you do need to recharge your batteries. Like I did a thing recently at a distillery. I did a training for their staff in the morning. Uh, I did a seminar that was open to the bar community in the afternoon. And then they reset the room in less than an hour, and we had an evening with Philip Duff. Uh, So basically I spent the entire day in this visitor center and it was, it's a stunning one. And the staff could not have been more attentive. Every two minutes, somebody would grab me and say, Hey Phil, do you want an espresso? There's tacos over here. Do you want a sandwich? I can make some chicken casserole. Like, and then I was teaching. um, And then an evening with Philip Duff, I was table hopping, making sure everybody, you know, got to have a chat with them and learn something about them. And we were done at like nine thirty PM, and I walked back to my hotel. Uh, the hotel's closed at ten PM. The hotel bar, so I had to walk fifteen minutes to find a bar because I just wanted to sit quietly with a beer by myself. Yeah, and not be listened to, not to, to not speak, to not have to even interact with these incredibly kind people who looked after me all day. I just needed to chill.
1: <laughs> There was this um, this book. It was when well, I read when I was younger. It was a Japanese death poems. So apparently, people who are uh, uh, some Buddhist monks, some haiku writers, um, they practice this one poem that they're going to write closest to their death that they can get it. So for some people, it's a month before, or a year before, some minutes before, I guess. Um, I I can't admit to knowing this whole story of it, but I remember reading a little bit about it. But there was this one poem that grabbed me and I loved it because it said, I like people and then I want them to go away. End of autumn. And I was like, wow, that is exactly how I feel. That is exactly how I feel.
0: I think I saw that on a t-shirt. (laughs)
1: <laughs> good good i'll buy the t-shirt that's it yeah
0: <laughs> i want to ask you a question then because uh you've taken off drinking for far longer than i ever have and i tend my journey tends to be in dry january that uh the first couple of days it's really hard yeah. so you know i tend not to go to bars um There's many, many triggers, like my wife's in the industry too, and we have cocktails with dinner and wine and beer and all. this. the first couple of days are hard. And Mm -hmm. then after about a week, it's okay. It's much less difficult. And then right up to the 30th day when I could, as much as I feel, never drink again. Yeah. You know, I could say to myself, I don't ever really need to drink again. But you've done it longer. Were there any milestones after the first 30 days that you noticed about how you felt or moved or slept or whatever?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of health benefits that come from doing it that you do start to recognize. And I'm careful not to promise these because I don't know, you know, like I think that sometimes when you... Read about dry January, you'd think that by just quitting alcohol, all of a sudden you're afterwards, you're just like glowing and you're like the happiest person in the world and everything's perfect. But that doesn't happen for everybody. Maybe it happens for those people who post it on social media, but it doesn't happen for everybody. Some people have a hard time. Some people, for myself, when I gave up drinking, I mentioned how it opened the door to all these other changes I meant. I made, but I didn't mention all of the turmoil that I went through, all of the kind of like mental anguish I had to go through to deal with my mental health, to talk to a therapist, to work through some of the bad behavior that I had engaged in. You know, Um, I wasn't always a good person during that time, you know, and and so I had to kind of I. I had to recognize that. I had to apologize to people. I had to change my behavior in some ways. Um, and so I had to go through a lot of inner work and it's work, it's literally work. So so it doesn't always lead to, you know, like, oh, I slept better and my skin's glowing, and you know, but also those things did happen to me. I did sleep better. Um, now I'm having <laughs> trouble sleeping, I'm stressed out all the time trying to get all my work done. Um mm. but but i would say that you know after an initial period of time i slept a lot better that was yeah. really good my skin improved i probably i dropped initially dropped 40 pounds um because it turns out that not drinking a thousand empty
0: calories a night was good good for me i mean Do you i think don't... other people know this
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so i think that you know like there were Benefits, there were milestones, but probably the best thing for me is that I was able to be more honest with myself about who I am. Because alcohol had been a shield, it'd been armor for me, it'd been a way to protect myself from seeing myself and maybe other people from seeing me. So when I and and so maybe that's not exactly what you're getting at. That's a little more personal, but but at the same time, that was a big milestone for me when. I started to feel horrible at one point, and I did not reach for anything to change that feeling. I just said, that's what I got to feel right now, because what I went through was, was hard. And it's okay to feel sometimes that you're not great. You know, like, I think in our society, we're constantly bombarded with these messages around being happy. I studied positive psychology, right? Here I am talking about, be sad. But what I'm trying to say is that we just need toxic positivity is a is a problem too. We need, oh fuck yeah yeah we need our moments to feel fucking awful and 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 develop our natural um, kind of protective uh, uh, factors like uh, psychological flexibility or or whatever the way that we deal with it for ourselves. And I think that that was a real big milestone for me.
0: Have you read um, Bright Sided by Barbara Ehrenreich? Oh, I have not, but I've heard about it. I heard it's really good, yeah. I think I think you will love this because it's, uh, uh it, she's, you know, the late Barbara Ehrenreich, actually, I think she passed away last year, but, you know, incredible social scientist, uh, researcher, lives her research, you know, in the famous nickel and dimed. She tried to live on minimum wage everywhere in America and failed, you know, working as a housekeeper and a maid and all that. So, yeah, she, she went in to examine positivity culture in the USA and uh, you know she went to a mega church and you know but she herself uh in the course of writing i guess this is the ultimate gonzo journalism got cancer she didn't do it on purpose <laughs> but she uh, you know and she used the opportunity to look at the the positivity and very often toxic positivity of cancer you talk about fighting cancer and and battling cancer and being a warrior But I mean, does that mean the people who die are they losers or something? Did they not fight hard enough? It's it's fascinating, Um, and you you can I think you can really do some a lot of damage by not sitting with your negative emotions. I I blame Oprah for this because (laughs) Oprah and her ilk um, came up, I think, with the word issue instead of problem. Okay. Right, and I think if if you have a problem you should call it a problem. Mm -hmm. You should not mask it with this PR bunny bullshit of issue. Because issue just means problem now. If you say, Derek's got issues, well, (laughs) (laughs) everyone knows what that means. I I think it's part of a longer slide into not saying the things that should be said, of pussyfooting around, if you will. So that, that comes out with, oh, you know, I, you're not sad. You just need a drink. You know? <laughs> if if you're sad, examine why you're sad. And maybe the reason you think it is is not the actual reason. Maybe you're kind of, there's an underlying thing. You know, if you're happy, enjoy it. But think to yourself, much like the Stoics, you're not going to be happy all the time because then you wouldn't be happy, if you see what I mean.
1: <laughs> they're, they're tied together. But let me add something to what you're saying because I think... There are sometimes, and, and this, I don't know what Oprah says about issues, so I can't really speak to that, but there are some times where the problems we have are also the solutions, which complicates things. So, going back to alcohol, I don't, when I was at my sort of most difficult time at mental health, and this is not me advocating to drink, but this is me being honest about my experience. Mm-hmm. Alcohol save me in some ways, right? Like, even though it was um, not the best tool, it was the tool that I used sometimes, and it kept me alive, um, even if it was slowly killing me, if that makes sense. So so that's an issue. That's, that's where we have a complication. It's not just uh, there is a problem in there, um, and I, I'm willing to admit that, and I think that that's a, what you're talking about. But there's also these complications there because the problem is also your solution. And it is rested on this whole backstory, everything you've been through, all of your experiences. And so these things get real complicated really quickly, what we go through. But, but the central point is that positivity is generally a good thing. To look forward and be optimistic about life is a big indicator of health and wellness. So, um, being generally optimistic is a good thing, but
0: grateful. Yes.
1: Yeah. Grateful. But when you're, when you're faced with, when you're faced with something that's gone wrong, a problem, if you will, you know, like it, 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 whether it's something you've done, something done to you, something, whatever. And sometimes the appropriate emotion is to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel whatever. And, and as you said, not, experiencing that, not really feeling that can be such a a detriment to your mental health, and it sticks with you, and it doesn't go away. And it becomes the foundation for how you make decisions in the future, even though the circumstances are different. Um, And so I think that's really important, too. So all of this is finding the right tool to deal with life, life's hard, it's not easy. You know, and so finding the right tools to deal with it it become really important. And for me, and this is one thing I want to say to people out there, again, in hospitality land to the bartenders, is that um, therapy is really a great tool to deal with it. It's not uh, it doesn't fix everything. Um, And not every therapist is the best one and not every therapeutic drug works for each person, but generally approaching Therapy, when you feel like you have reached a problem that you yourself cannot solve alone, is really important. You know, we have to call upon other people to help. Um, we can't do this life alone. And We need people to support. And you and I both have probably experienced a lot of people in this industry who passed away because they weren't able to deal with that. You know, like it, it, they weren't able to reach out. Uh, they weren't able to, to find the appropriate tool for their problem. And so uh, I really try to get out there and preach as much as possible that you can change your circumstance. You can address the problems in your life. And I think it's really important to do so.
0: Yeah, I think if you have genuine problems in your life, if you're sad or depressed or whatever, alcohol will make them seem worse. Yeah. Like there's there's a lot of people I know who've killed themselves. And they were drunk, and I think it's like uh, I've I've had that feeling, uh, and I think it's the same feeling, the same internal devil, when you're at the top of a very tall building that says, "What if you just jumped? What if you just jumped?" Yeah, and there's something inside like you would never ever think of uh, you maybe you would never think of killing yourself if you weren't drunk, um, but when you're drunk, your body is saying to you hey, you know what you should do is have another drink. That'll work because the first one was great. Like, I guess it comes back to the quote about, you know, the very best drink is the first one of the day. Yeah, You know, and after you've had it, it's not available again until tomorrow.
1: Uh, absolutely. Sorry for a brief pause. My 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 bell was ringing and I was like concerned that somebody was trying to get in touch with me or in emergency. I don't know. Um, so sorry, we can either cut that out or leave it as an interesting interlude.
0: It's an interesting interlude. Our <laughs> our things are, uh, are, are full of them. Do you think that te- therapy, uh, should be done long-term because I, uh, t- I think Oscar Wilde said the Irish are the only race that are impervious to therapy. Um, <laughs> You know, it, with physical therapy, if you broke something and you needed to get it fixed, you would go and get it fixed. And at a certain moment, that would be as good as it would ever be, right? right. Maybe you don't get back full use of the knee joint or whatever. But like, there's no point doing any more uh, physical therapy because you've solved the problem to the greatest extent that you can. Do you think that's the same with therapy? I, I think it's it,
1: it's each individual, you know, just like you were talking about, like if some people... Um, they break their leg, they go get therapy, they they feel much better. They're good. Their leg's fine. Some people have shoulder issues for their entire life and have to constantly address it. So I think it's the same with mental health. I think there are probably some people who have to have long-term therapeutic um, treatment. Um, and there are some people who um, maybe need a brief kind of discussion and they get over it. I mean, it, it's just we're also unique in our um, in that area. You know, we all have different experiences. And so I think that it's I can't I can't tell you for sure um, if if it's good or bad on a short term or long term. I just think it depends on the person.
0: Mm. The return to mental health. Uh, I'm sure you've read books by uh, maybe you've read The Coddling of the American Mind by Lukainoff and John Haidt. No, I haven't. Very, very good book. And it's about how, essentially, to sum up a a very long book, uh, safetyism is actually harming kids, college students, because a combination of helicopter parenting and snowplow parenting leaves them totally unprepared for college. It's not their fault. And then they show up. So I think John Hype's the professor at the Stern School of Business here in New York City, and Greg Lukyanov runs the Free Speech Foundation, fire, and they see young people who literally think that the world is ending because Donald Trump got elected, or the other side of it, and they invent concepts such as words or violence, and it really and truly affects their mental health. Like I know people who you know had to go to therapy to cope with Donald Trump being the uh, being the president. And there's some crazy statistic that way over fifty percent of college freshmen report mental health issues, most frequently anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's probably a few grifters who want a bit longer time on their exams, but it mm-hmm. is a real uh, a real thing. Yeah, Matt, is that something you can cool. speak about?
1: Yeah, Matt, I mean, no, I'm not an expert on this stuff. Um, I can conjecture a bunch of stuff about it. I the let's book conjecture very, yeah, I mean, the book <laughs> sounds very interesting. And I think there is really clearly um a issue with mental health in our country and perhaps the world, but the the country is the statistics that I'm familiar with. and a lot of young people are dying. I mean, it's it's not it's not great. So I think that um there's lots of different ways to think and approach that. Um everything from you know nutrition to culture, I think all of the there's lots of people suggesting this is one reason why people are doing it. I feel like there's lots of different reasons probably um i I think one thing that I can talk about is my own experience with my son and trying to you know trying to figure out what is the best balance of freedom and You know, guardrails, right? Because, and I know you know this as a parent too, is that it's very challenging. There's moments that you're very scared for them and, you know, what might happen. But you also recognize there's moments you have to let them experience things that might be scary for you. So my son's nine years old. And when I was like five years old, I was like walking across the street and I, I feel like I was able to to be very independent. I live in the city. Back then I lived in the suburbs um on a, a you know cul-de-sac it was a little bit you know everybody knew each other there um in my neighborhood we have gun violence it happens not frequently but frequently enough and obviously there's lots of nefarious things happening um you know even sometimes in the corner of the block. So I think that um and and just so you know in DC we've had an amazing Increase in crime, especially around like carjackings and people stealing iPhones and puppies and shit. I mean, it's 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 a difficult time in that, and I don't know exactly why, but but I know that it puts my son in potential harm's way. So he's like, "Hey, can I walk to school?" And I think to myself, "Well, I don't know." Um, and so ultimately, I've come down to to realize that I have to give him the opportunity. Even if it's dangerous sometimes to do things, because I really believe in this um, this this idea that there there are three things that we really need to be happy, um, and it's called self determination theory. Have you ever heard of this before? No. Um, you, you've heard of like Ma- Maslow's hierarchy of needs and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they, they they throw that one away and say, okay, yeah, maybe, but but really, there's three core things that we need one is relatedness we need to be able to connect to each other that's what you're talking about social wellness right um two is competency we need to feel like we're good at something and you know for for us that's you know cocktails or spirits that competency really reflects back on us and makes us happy about who we are um and then the last thing is uh is is essentially independence or freedom and that without that, we're not going to feel happy or complete, right? We can't have just relatedness. We can't just all be connected all the time, right? We talked about that being able to unplug yourself, pull yourself offline in a social environment, spend time by yourself. Um, and so, so I think that's one thing that's really informed my parenting is thinking about that. Is like there's a lot of times when I have to let him be and determine things for himself. Um, you know, when I was a kid, um, my my parents did that for me, um, sometimes in good ways, sometimes not so good ways. Um, but but it gave me, uh, uh, you know, like I said, from when I was 16 years old, I was on my own and I was able to take care of myself for at least up to 49. I don't know how the rest of this life is going to go, but, but I've made it this far, which I surprised at. Um, but but I think that I'm delighted by it too. And, and And I think I have to trust that my son will be able to Um, make some good decisions. But there's also, you know, I'm also not going to let him go out at 2 a.m. and and go party with his friends yet. He's not ready for that.
0: Well, that's it. I do think that parenting is putting your kids in controlled danger in a way, right? Like let him walk to school in the morning. You know, it's bright out. There's other parents and kids. That's not too weird. Maybe don't let him go out with a pocket knife at 2 a.m. That's, you know, a bit off the rails. But I mean, I know there's uh my kid's uh 18 now she's home from college but one of her friends uh her dad really liked to drive which is a bit of a weird thing in New York City so he would yeah. drive her everywhere anywhere anytime they had to go anywhere she never rode the subway wow. she's now an 18 year old who's afraid of riding the subway and uh <laughs> We had a habit from when our kid was young, we'd all sit down at the breakfast table or the dinner table and we talk about the news and we talk about, you know, wars here and things happening there, you know, from when Dylan was, you know, nine years old or 10 years old or something like that. And uh, this girl's dad pulled me aside. He said, yeah, when uh, his daughter is staying over, would you mind not talking about the news? It makes her nervous you know and that's a that's a horrible thing if you think about it it comes from a place of love yeah yeah i mean
1: i don't know i mean i don't really know the circumstances of that person's life but but yeah i mean we should be able it seems reasonable that we should be able to uh, not and not like just doom scrolling all the time as they say but like mm-hmm. I mean, there's issues we need to talk about them as a society as as, as a culture so that uh, seems important um yeah my you know with my son too, there's times that I'm I'm not sure exactly what to say and what not to say about certain things. So so I think everyone's just kind of making it up. In all fairness, <laughs> and and sometimes we get it right, and then sometimes we get sat down when our kids 30 years old and explained all all the ways that we disappointed them, and <laughs> uh, and uh, that hopefully they do better than us.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does give you uh, a perspective on on your own life, watching kids grow up and watching them interact with their phones. It's a very different, they, they use them in a completely different way. Like my kid is fluent in emoji in a way oh, yeah. that I could only dream of. She can use TikTok. I can barely open the app. Uh, she has Instagram basically just for her parents. Yeah. So, and she puts a photo up like once a month, maybe. <laughs> to appease us. Yeah, it's it's
1: it's such a different world than when we grew up. And um, and it's there's some good things or some bad things. One thing that's really funny is my son is obsessed with memes. Oh, yeah. And uh, he jokes that he wants to become a meme historian. um, Excellent.
0: Distinguished professor of memeing.
1: I don't think that's (laughs) not I think that's going to be a thing. I definitely think there will be they might already be a distinguished professor of meme history
0: um but but the chair of meme scholarship at <laughs> harvard
1: <laughs> it's it's out there it's out there and and you know I, they're just growing up in an entirely absolutely different world and 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 for good some great things exist and some challenges exist but um you know i think that uh i'm exci- i'm excited to watch him grow up and he's taught me about a lot about my life and i can say this that when i first um knew that I was going to be a father, I started keeping this list of all the things that I was going to tell him that I thought were really important things that he should learn, you know, things that my grandfather had stoic wisdom, you know, like, whatever it was, I mean, I remember my grandfather said something like, I had on a suit, but my shoes were not, you know, uh, polished, polished. And so um, he said, you know what? if you put on a suit, you might as well polish your shoes. And I thought that was good advice. I thought, Hey, that's a great life lesson, you know? Um, And, and so I wrote that down, things like that. And then, um, you know, it was maybe, I don't know, a few months into him being alive. And I had totally forgotten about that list. I lost it. I don't know where it is because it was never going to be me just imprinting that. I, I think sharing values is important. So I don't want to, say that that's not important, but, but I've seen him grow up to be his own unique person. And, um, he likes things differently, different than me to my chagrin, right? Like I was raised on punk music. I love punk music and he doesn't care at all. You know, like I'll give you an example. Um, recently Shane McGowan passed away. Um, And I wanted to sit him down and tell him an incredible experience I had with Shane McGowan, which I thought was like a life lesson to me, right? And I'll tell you this experience and what I was going to convey to him. So I was at my first concert ever. I was 13 years old, 12 or 13 years old. I can't remember. And the violent Femmes were playing with the pokes. And I didn't know the pokes. But I'd heard of the violent Femmes because my sister listened to them or something like that. Right. So I went to this yeah. concert, and um my uncle had backstage passes. So I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna meet the violent femmes. This is amazing. So I went back there and me and my friend, we just sat there and waited patiently till they walked by. And the violent femmes walked by. And they completely snubbed us. I mean, I'm not surprised. We were just like a bunch of you know scrawny kids, but it was. Like, you know, you know how you take things when you're a kid sometimes. That was really hurtful to me. And um, I was sitting there just looking completely, um, you know, uh, crestfallen. But who comes across, just walks right across and shakes our hand and thanks us for coming to the concert? Shane McGowan. He just came across and said – he was drunk as hell, by the way. But he had seen everything. Now, you know, you pick up these things in the periphery. He had seen what happened. He walked over, and he just thanked us for coming to the concert. And that little bit of kindness just, like, was really, like, lifted my – spirits made me feel great. And I've never forgotten that moment. It's made me think about how you treat human beings, you know, like how you have to treat every person with dignity, regardless of whether you see them as somebody important or not. And maybe I I took too much out of that experience, but it was a powerful thing. So I sat my son down and I was about to tell him this whole story because I was a little teary-eyed about Shane McGowan passing. And he goes, not now, dad, I don't need a speech. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Fair enough. I'll just tell you another time."
0: <laughs> yeah, it's heartbreaking when your kids fucking brush you off like that, because you you love them so much, and you want to impart wisdom. And very often, it's hard-earned wisdom. It's the mistakes you made, or the things you wish you knew. And you're 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 giving them this information. It's going to help them hack life. So yeah. if they make mistakes, they'll make their mistakes. They won't repeat your mistakes. And they're like, "Whatever." I was like, oh nightmare. But I guess that's them uh asserting
1: themselves. Yeah, that's right. I mean, then they have to have yeah, and you gotta give them a little space to do it. But then every now and then you have to sit them down and give them a good lecture. Not for them, for you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's talking therapy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, but but uh, you know, he's a wise kid already at nine. He's doing he's doing great. So so I'm happy with his decision. He he did pick up soccer. And he doesn't skateboard. I, I skateboard. I love skateboarding. Um, and we started skateboarding together. And then he gave it up for soccer, and that was that was hard for me um, because I don't know anything about soccer.
0: I, um, I don't know either.
1: No, no so idea. I've had to learn. I've had to learn, and um, I haven't learned well. But but it's a. It's, he doesn't. And now he's playing futsal, which is like a Brazilian five-on-five indoor soccer. I don't know, but
0: it's
1: it's exciting to watch. But I don't really understand. it. Well
0: I think I think for your health mental and physical you're going to have to give up skateboarding.
1: No. It uh. seems
0: really dangerous. I I think Alex Cretana had to get hand surgery a couple of years ago when he got back on a skateboard.
1: Yeah, fair enough. It is definitely presents more challenges than pickleball. That's for sure. But I will say this. Um skateboarding has taught me resilience more than anything else. Um and I think that like uh, when I see young people skateboarding, I, I just I'm so happy for them because they found a way to learn resilience, which because you were talking earlier about, you know, the coddling of the American mind. And I think I don't like I said, I don't know the book and I don't know if I'm an expert on anything around that. But but I will say that sometimes we could use a little resilience. I mean, life is tough. We we at least know that. And so um, that resilience helps us bounce back and feel better. When you're skateboarding, you just go after the same trick time after time again. You can spend an entire day trying to learn one trick. And um, that kind of discipline, that kind of mental and physical discipline can be really important.
0: Now, as you get older,
1: <laughs> I've changed the way I skateboard. So So I definitely don't take the risks that I would have taken as a younger person. Uh, But I I I look at some of the great skateboarders like Tony Hawk or even Tony Alva. He's in his 60s and um, they're still skating. So,
0: I have ever did you ever see the thing where it's it's called Thrasher magazine, isn't it? Yep. Somebody like that um, called up Werner Herzog for an interview. (laughs) You've seen the one, and they ask him, "What do you think about skateboarding?" He's like, "Well, I never skateboarded, but I ski jumped," and. The the interview goes on. It's surreal. And at the end, the guy says, so what, you know, if you were filming skateboarders, what uh, music? Without hesitation, he goes, you know, Russian cathedral choirs. Yeah. And there's actually a video where uh somebody puts Russian cathedral music as the soundtrack to skaters on Venice Beach. It's absolutely marvelous. Yeah, I love that
1: that interview. I can't, it wasn't Thresh, it was another magazine, I can't No, it wasn't, it. you're right, yeah. It's a little bit more gritty, uh, mag- Skateboarding Magazine, but um, but I would say that like, yeah, I love that interview and he he really nails what Skateboarding is, it, it's a spiritual experience um, is what he calls it and I know that sometimes the word spirituality can just be thrown around um, in a willy-nilly way but, but, but honestly, you know, it's this challenge with yourself, it's a struggle with yourself There's nobody else to beat. There's nobody else, you know, I mean, I know it's become a sport and it's an Olympic sport. And so in that sense, yes, but I'm not in the Olympics and I'm not, you know, I think for most people, it's a challenge against themselves and it's understanding their own limitations and it's, um, and it's really trying to transcend their own limitations. So, so I think in that way, it can be an incredibly spiritual thing and it can be something really powerful. And I love that he commented on that was a wonderful uh, interview so anybody out there read that interview it's awesome
0: yeah yeah get on youtube werner herzog skateboarders uh it's probably all you need there's like all different cuts of it i mean i do think some physical activities uh develop grit faster and farther i did a lot of martial arts when i was a kid and like that's just hard and it's hard for everyone and it's hard at every skill level you know? And it's so fumbling too
1: i i did um I, I did Muay Thai and Judo for years, and um, I got to tell you that I've never learned my limitations better than that, um, because I could get my ass kicked by a 17-year-old kid or a 60-year-old man, right? Like, <laughs> I realized that, like, it it was all a matter of skill and training, and there's, you know, I think for the, the male mind, sometimes we're all, you know, we're all... Um, mm-hmm uh you know Chuck Norris, but the reality is that, you know, when you're when you're in a fight, if you have the skill of how to fight, then you can fight. And if you don't, then you probably lose. I mean, obviously there's some other differentials there, but but I think that that's the main thing. And so that was like really um telling for me. So I really love that. Uh what martial arts did you do?
0: Uh Shodokan karate. Oh cool. cool. And in my thirties I boxed. In fact those are hilarious. I went to two gyms um, and the second one, they only trained on Wednesday mornings. And it was me and my mate, Yorgos, who was also a bartender and about my age. And everybody else was in their 70s. These old men who had typically worked in the harbour of Rotterdam. This was in Rotterdam and boxed their entire lives from the age of eight or nine. Wow. And pretty much all of them could beat the crap out of me or Yorgos at any moment. They were incredible.
1: That's like,
0: awesome. I, I was in the changing rooms one day, and, you know, one old fucker saying to the other old fuck, he's like, yeah, I had to give up marathons four years ago because of my knees. Meaning he gave up running marathons at the age of 68. It's wow. like, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Yeah, I think, I mean, and th- this is going back to that. Um,
1: that dry january thing the the first days it can be really difficult one of the ways that you can there's lots of different approaches or tactics that you can use actually i have an entire course coming out with the national academy of sports medicine which i guess i'll plug here too is on mindful drinking um and in it it goes through it's got five chapters the first one is on alcohol and society where i talk about yeah, how it has evolved with us an important part of our society um then it goes all the way through to mindful drinking and, and the different approaches that we can use. So I try to really spell out um, these this strategy, right? So, so uh, I came up with an acronym to help. Uh, it's called RATE or the rate at which you're drinking, in a sense. Is um, it, it's replace, avoid, temper, or elicit help, right? So these are four categories of different tactics that you can use. So replace can mean like drinking non-alcoholic drinks or avoid is as you said I can't go out to a bar on January second because it's it's too much you know um, temper is obviously reducing the amount that you drink and there's lots of again other strategies and then elicit, eliciting help is to um, ask for use like an app or use like a, a somebody a buddy that you're doing with or or, or even you know whatever way that you ask for help in, in that. Um, but there's also this idea that you can um do other activities, right? That's another form of replacement. You can do different activities that get you going, that get you excited, that that are social and fun. Um, like, you know, skateboarding, even though it's a very individualistic sport, is usually there's a group of people that go and do it together, right? Or running or, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed this, but a lot of uh, sober bartenders um, become marathon runners, you know, because they're looking for, one, you get a little bit high at the end of a run. Um, but two, it's also a social activity that, you know, gets your body kind of revved up. So I think that it's a way of replacing that Uh Although I'm not recommending January second that you run a marathon instead of going to the pub, then
0: that, that might not be. I think that would be replacing one form of extreme behavior with another. It's like but, that uh, that movie maybe pickleball. <laughs> I, I I I'm not giving in to pickleball yet. They when they wheel me into the retirement community, perhaps uh, <laughs> it's probably better exercise than it looks. I mean, what did, did you take up anything um, physical? on your sober journey, apart from skateboarding? Is there something that you found you like doing or training in a different way?
1: Yeah, walking. That's my number one thing. I love walking. Um, And it's a really, I I think people don't think it's exercise because it's so easy to do in a way, but it's really great exercise. I hate exercise personally. I hate going to the gym. It's just not for me. Um, And I don't want to discourage people from doing it but um so that's why i chose like impact sports or or, or or skateboarding because those were a little bit more my speed but ironically on the other side of that is walking i i try to just get in you know 10 12 thousand steps a day um and just purposeful walking you know like i take my dog out and we go you know in that sense it's really easy and i know that it's it, it like i said it doesn't seem like a lot of activity but it is really good for you because Here's what happens: People will go to the gym and they'll spend, they'll uh, you know go for one hour, three times a week or whatever, or maybe every day. But it's still such a small part of their day. Mm-hmm. Like the rest of the day, they sit down. Now, I'm not, not talking about bartenders, obviously. We work out all the time, but they sit down the rest of the time. So, in in a way, negating some of the benefits of the, the exercise, where it, it it might be better in some ways to just throughout the day do different activities you know get up in the morning walk your dog and the, you know instead of sitting all morning get up and do some stretching after about you know an hour of of uh, doing some work um going to do uh, some light yard work or or you know stuff like that those can be really great ways to move and that that's one way that i really enjoy doing it right breaking up my day with doing different Um, movement. I just call it movement because I I think exercise can also be intimidating to people. Um, And they think you have to go to a gym when you say that.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a guy, do you know, guy, um, Andrew Huberman? Yeah. Yeah. I heard him interviewed recently and he's a big fan of walking. And unlike us he knows why <laughs> he's yeah. you know he's done the research and he said that you know he would often when you had to think about stuff he would just walk around his backyard and walk and walk and walk and if students wanted to ask him stuff he'd say yeah come on like walk with me yeah. uh and the deeper level of that is that we we think as we walk mm-hmm. you know and if you could go, you go for a walk stick your your airpods in uh and listen to metallica or you could just think if you have a problem to solve. I don't think we do enough of that. Like just going for a walk, or indeed, just if you have to sit down, sit down, stare at a blank piece of paper and think. We, I think we do a lot. We do a lot of stuff, but we don't think as much as we should.
1: Yeah, I have to say that my favorite thing to do is think, um, which I, could lead me away from activity. But I love the walking part of it. I really, I really enjoy taking a pr- problem um, and, and especially something of an ethical variety and kind of like mulling it over my head and just walking and thinking about different arguments. And um, my partner is a, a former debate champion. So I also have to always sharpen my axe. Um, otherwise, I lose all the debates. So, but, but I enjoy thinking, I think it's really important and um, I don't know. I don't know where else to go with that. But I, I love thinking. I don't. I don't know if it's for everybody. But but you know, like I, I read a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time. I still go to school. I mean, I'm 49. I'm still in school. You know, um, I always have to be taking a class. It really helps me to to learn um, just anything you know i uh, although i tend to be also really focused on certain subjects you know that which is what happened with bartending for me you know when i first like discovered bartending i read a book called straight up or on the rocks by william grimes william
0: grimes yeah
1: um and i didn't know that there was this whole world of dale groff and all of that you know i i i just Read about this and was like, oh my god! There used to be this, you know, golden age of bartending, and um, that would be really cool. And so, after that, I made a Sazerac for the first time, and wow. I thought wow covered the Holy Grail, you know. And he, his is with Angostura and Peychaud, so I don't. It wasn't right, I guess. Depends. Um, but but then later I came across that there was this whole movement that was happening, and I was like, wow, this is where I want to be, and so. That was when I was about 27 years old. 20 years later, I kind of lifted my head up. I was like, oh, okay, wow, that was exciting. What next do we want to learn, <laughs> right? And so in some ways, that's why I've kind of taken this other journey, which is, uh, you know, connected, concentric in a sense, but it is, um, you know, uniquely about health. I, I, I kind of find myself in this strange role of not just being a bartender, but to some degree, a health educator as well. Um, And so I am learning as much as I can so that I can, you know, talk about it in a way that I think is true, and, you know, empirically based and and also is helpful and useful to people, because I mean, my expertise at this point, or what I'm trying to focus in on is mindful drinking and no and low alcohol cocktails. Um, But there's a whole world that kind of revolves around that of of wellness and psychology and all that stuff. So trying to understand that too has been a real endeavor of mine and, and I enjoy that. And I'm I, not, not just for the ability to share it with other people, but just for myself, just so I know it. I, I really like that.
0: And do you do any of the uh, Huberman things like go for a walk first thing in the morning or cold showers, hot saunas, that sort of thing? I,
1: I think Huberman's great. I can barely make it through one episode of his because he's not as charming as you. Um, he's just a, a little bit dry. So, um, so I try to read the, the podcast notes afterwards.
0: Don't tell him. I've never listened to. I've never listened to his podcast. I've only heard him be interviewed. But yeah, there's a whole Huberman universe of people who transcribe the podcast, which is obviously you read quicker than you can listen. So. Well, the information is
1: great. I mean, he's obviously a, a, a very um, educated person and somebody who who really cares about conveying science in a meaningful way to people. I love that because um, I don't think we get that enough. And he talks about walking. He talks, I, you know, the things that I follow, I would say, is that I try to get sun in my eyes before 10 a.m. That never happened when I was a bartender. Um, and that happens every day now. Um, I definitely take like the last minute or so of my shower. I'll take a cold shower. Um, I hate to say it, it's like doing a line of cocaine, man. I mean, I, <laughs> I admit it's been a little while since I've done uh, done done that, but but just like when you hit yourself with a real cold shower, uh, all of a sudden I'm like perked up and I'm like, whoa, you know, uh, I'm ready to go. So I so I, I enjoy that just for its own sake. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing to admit. Um, and he has a lot of other protocols. One thing that he talked about was journaling, which is something mm-hmm. that really relates well to mindful drinking too. He said that there's a specific protocol, as he calls them, you know, like a 15 to 30 minutes of writing about traumatic past experiences that can help you, you know, in isolation by yourself, just writing it down. You don't have to share it with anybody. But but it can really help you process things. We talked about processing some of our negative emotions, and and that doesn't work for everybody, I don't think. But generally, the science bears out that this is a good thing to do to help a person get past things. And he recently had an episode on that that I like that I liked a lot. And he had a, a episode on alcohol that was very good, um, where he, you know without prejudice, although he doesn't drink, so maybe some prejudice, he kind of lays out all of the health aspects of alcohol, according to science to date. And that's a really important thing to note, because I think sometimes people think science is once and always, once you put a pin in it, that's it. But the reality is it's ever evolving and changing and and based on um, new and better ways to research things based on a body of evidence over time. So, you know, uh, I, I love that he, you know, is sharing that information is also open for the fact that it could change over time.
0: Yeah, it's you know I didn't listen to that one. I'm terrified, obviously. But uh, <laughs> it's like there's a cartoon of these aliens going into a bar. Um, it's it's quite a well-known cartoon. I just can't remember the name of it. And the 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 alien bartender is like, "It is joyful hour. Would you like, you know, two glasses of weaker alcohol or two smaller glasses of? No, he doesn't say alcohol. He says poison." would yeah. you like two tall glasses of tall, of of weaker poison or two really strong glasses of poison and they're like oh we will have the strong glasses of poison because you know we we put lots of things into our bodies that we shouldn't yeah. and our body is like an incredible thing yeah. right it it fixes us up and sets us on our way um but alcohol is a mild poison and our body can cope with mild poison but every day and if you've got the you know the the strong liquors stuff your body's got to say hey buddy like the big mac every day not a great idea fantastic treat
1: yeah yeah and there's it's interesting so in the beginning of my course with the national academy of sportsmen uh Sports Medicine, I talk about this and and not to not to say we should i i am 100% against banning alcohol but but if alcohol was given to us today like somebody came down and said here here's the alcohol the question is would it be legal and i think the answer we all know is no way right like i mean based on the things that are illegal in our world um it falls well into that uh that area so i think that um That that's something that that is true. It's definitely something in our society that presents us with a tremendous challenge. And not just in our society, it's gone back for thousands and thousands of years. This debate has been endless, right? I mean, you can read the Bible and it's a debate in the Bible, right? Where there's, you know, on one hand, Jesus is, you know, turning water into wine. On the other hand, he's saying it, it bites you like a serpent. You know, like, so, um, you know, ancient civilizations from the Aztecs to uh, ancient China have banned alcohol and then reversed it and then, you know, reversed it again or whatever. So it's just been a constant struggle in our society to understand the relationship of alcohol. And, you know, I think I've come to the point where I realized we're never going to ban it and we probably shouldn't. It didn't really work out so well. Um for us, because the last time that we banned it um in the United States, Prohibition, a hundred years later, we had bartenders wearing suspenders and vests, and it was horrible.
0: Yeah. The, was horrible. the long, the long <laughs> finger of uh of repeal. Well, America in its lovely freewheeling way, I, I think it was not just uh the most recent, it was also the last country pretty much to try prohibition because everyone, every other country had tried it and it had failed. And America's like, now nah, we're going to do it differently here.
1: Well, there, it, there's actually about I think there's there's less than a dozen countries that um, that ban it today. Um, you know, obviously a lot of Middle Eastern uh, countries, um, but it, it's still it's pretty much a failure in in the sense that people still drink there. People still have problems around it there. It's it's not something that's easily kept under wraps. It's easy well, it's, to make
0: it it's not, it, but it does alcohol enact physical changes as well. Like you, you have a drink and then your body's telling you, you know what the perfect accompaniment to this would be? Another drink. So then you have another drink and your body's like, this is going great. We must yeah. have a third drink, right? Yeah. You're killing it, Phil. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. Because you're
1: the- you charming and, you know, and and everyone loves you. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the, the things that, you know, alcohol is so many- as you said, physical effects, um, that are very powerful. Sometimes it's hard to really like tease them out because some of them might be really cultural based, but, um, it, you know, there's this theory and, um, Slingerland talks about it a little bit about my, uh, alcohol or cognitive myop- myopia or myopic theory. Yeah. That, says that What alcohol really does is that it kind of centers us in the present in a way that it Kind of all the externalities, you know. Slingerland says it, it takes the the prefrontal cortex offline, yeah. you know? and and that's true to some degree. Um, it may it may be more complicated than that, but but ultimately, it, what, what it what it is is that you know we're no longer aware of all the other stuff going on. We're now just here, and so um, Dwight Heath, who's a researcher of anthropology and, and alcohol. Um, coined this term myopia theory and um Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in The New Yorker many years ago yes. really great article and talks about how you you give somebody alcohol and you put them in a bar by themselves with a sad song playing and they're going to cry in their beer you give another person alcohol you put them in a stadium with you know with people cheering and then they they kind of like in, they they tend to be um to mimic those behaviors, so mm-hmm. so ultimately alcohol is just kind of centers you in that moment, which is can be good or bad depending on the moment and the circumstances. But but certainly it like it, it has a way of making us forget that we have things to do the next morning. That's for sure.
0: Right? Yes, it does. Is there anything that alcohol can't do? This marvelous drug, but there's a darker side to us. Um, Gladwell he wrote about this in his books too, um, and he was. you know, investigating what it means to be blackout. And I had been in the industry 27 years before I actually learned what blackout drunk means. It doesn't mean you're passed out in the corner. You are fully carrying on conversations, thinking you're being charming and witty. And maybe you are, but you have this cognitive myopia. You can only focus on the person in front. Um, You're not focusing very well on them. And uh, you are not making any new memories. Like yeah. you can test it by, you know, going up to somebody you think might be blackout drunk, ask them for their name, then walk away, wait literally 12 seconds and go back mm-hmm. and ask them again.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought blackout meant passed out.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, by the time you get the passed out stage of it, that's a, that's an overdose. That's, I think that's another thing that people don't often think about. I don't want to, I don't want to belabor it, but I think that, you know, when we drink too much, it has, it's, it's an overdose. And, but, but definitely, yeah, there's, have you ever had that experience when the next day you're like, Holy shit, what did I do last night? I have no idea.
0: I'll and, twice.
1: <laughs> and like, Try to piece it together through the text. And you're like, um, um, okay. Should I write that person back? Why did I text that string of emojis? You know what? It, there, that—that's a weird experience, and, and and definitely, I think they generally call that also a brownout, right? Which is not not named after me, although I've done it frequently. <laughs> well,
0: there's that thing. I I would wake up uh, if I'd been out to a bunch of bars, like gripped by a terror that I hadn't paid in a bar or that I hadn't tipped. I have to, you know, go through the. The receipts as oh, thank god so far it has never happened. But uh, if there's a bartender out there that I ever walked out on the check or uh didn't tip you correctly, please get in touch with the show. I'd like to make amends. That's
1: awesome, you're gonna get a lot of requests. Um, that's right, not because, not because you didn't <laughs> walk out on them, but because people are like, remember that? I, oh, of course, you don't remember here. Um, <laughs> but I think that, yeah. That general feeling the next day of, like, this acute anxiety, Kingsley Amos uh, called it the metaphysical hangover, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you feel this sense of, like, people hate me, and I did everything wrong, you know? I mean, maybe not you, but... I feel I felt that way. I should clarify. And and this metaphysical hangover can be pretty intense. You're like, oh, shit. You know, like it's it's your brain lying to you about what you've done, and who you are. But it, but it is part of the anxiety around that comes from alcohol. I mean, alcohol in a, a drink or two can help us obviously become more social and in some cases relax. Um, but it actually generally causes more anxiety than it solves. Um, which is one struggle with it, right? Especially people who do have issues around depression or anxiety, it can be it can be a double whammy. Um, as we were mentioned earlier, this can be something that can be very dangerous for certain people. But I think that um that's important to recognize, you know, like alcohol could immediately resolve some anxiety, but ultimately it's going to cause more than it solves.
0: Well, you need to, I think. Get outside yourself in a way that when you're taking alcohol, it's like you are purposely ingesting this poison for a very specific reason. Yeah. Uh, you should be clear on the reason and happy with the reason. Uh, but you say at a certain moment, I'm going to want more and then I'm going to want a Big Mac and some ice cream and then I'll probably have some cocaine like that. that, is, <laughs> that that's going to happen. And you're going to have to say no to yourself. And it's going to feel a bit shitty because yeah. you want the ice cream and the cocaine and the Big Mac, right? But having the ice cream, and the cocaine, and the Big Mac wouldn't make you feel better. So if you're going to feel a bit shitty anyway, it can be with the benefit of thinking, well, you know, I only had three drinks, so I'm fine. Let's get back to uh, drugs, though. It's always fun to talk about those. Uh, have you ever heard of naltrexone? Yeah. Yeah, most people don't know about it, and there's some people wearing tinfoil hats who will say it's a conspiracy because it's a generic, right. and I'm bringing it up. So naltrexone, uh, what's the best way to say it? it? It cuts the dopamine feedback, yes? Is that a good description?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the same thing that um, Ozempic does to some degree. I, by the way, it's not the same mechanism, but it's generally the same thing where it's like it cuts back the reward, right? so we get a reward from doing something over and over again like drinking or eating a big mac and so um yeah and and it's interesting because i think uh, you know up to this point there's been a lot of kind of focus on one type of recovery for people who have issues around substance use disorder the focus has been on uh, alcoholics and or narcotics anonymous and just saying, I'm forever and always going to be an alcoholic or a drug addict and I have to. And that's created a lot of good in the world, right? It's helped a lot of people, but it's also created some stigma as well. And so there's a lot of stigma. People are afraid to approach this because they think, well, that's it for the rest of my life, I'm going to be labeled as an alcoholic and I have to like, you know, drink shitty coffee in a basement and share with people every day my problems. And that's not true for everyone, right? A a, a good portion of people, and this is not advice, but this is just what exists out there is a good portion of people recover on their own. Um, and, uh, people like myself, we find other ways, we have other recovery stories, but I recovered, but I'm not in recovery. Right. So I don't, I'm not going to always carry a, a flag of being an alcoholic, even though I had alcohol use disorder. Um, and that's a little bit going back to that idea about therapy for sometimes sometimes people need therapy for life and sometimes people need it for um a few sessions and that's enough and i think that that's the same to some degree with substance use disorder um and sometimes you need medication which is what you're talking about as well and there is medication out there that's one of them and it's really important to know because Somebody who's sitting there listening, just like one person maybe, and that's enough for me, is sitting there going, how am I going to deal with my life, All right? I I drink too much or I, I uh, do too many drugs, and I need to make a change, but I don't want to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, right? You know, it, sometimes it's a totally different approach works for you. And the most important thing, though, is to reach out and get help, right? To go to... Uh, your physician or a therapist or even if that feels uncomfortable, a peer who has some experience in this, like somebody who has gone through recovery and, you know, ask you advice. Um, because I think that there's a lot of different approaches uh, and those are it's really important to explore this. Approach. That's one of them. There's this company that a friend of mine um, who used to be a regular at um, the Columbia Room. Which I, I don't know if I caused his problem, but he uh, he he was kind of dealing with you know drinking too much, and he found this medication that really helped him, and now he is what a mindful drinker. But he founded a company called OR Health, O A R Health, and and they um, can, you can prescribe it online basically. You talk to one of those people. I don't. By the way, I don't get any money for this, so I'm, this is not me plugging. That's um, somebody. O A R Health
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so, well, I a don't get an affiliate
1: link for it um uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's really cool that uh Jonathan hunt glassman I, I really cool that he he is putting that out there because it's helping to expand the uh, options for people to recover because I do want to clarify something I think you know when we when I talk about mindful drinking and I talk about recovery they are two different things to me um even though they exist on a spectrum so does light and dark Right. So I think that the fact is mindful drinking is when we're dealing with things like peer pressure and um, habit and conformity and recovery is when we can't do it alone. Right. When alcohol or other substances have become such an issue in our lives, they're outsized, you know, that they are changing things that we don't want changed and in a way that they're becoming the only thing that we think about or desire. Um, There's a really great writer named G.K. Chesterton, Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, had this piece about, you know, uh, drinking. And he said that there's uh, rational drinking and irrational drinking is what they call them. And uh, rational drinking, it's kind of flip flops in my mind a little bit. But rational drinking, as I remember, is drinking because you don't need it. Mm -hmm. Right. Which he calls the ancient health of the world. And drinking, irrational drinking is drinking because you need it, which is, in his mind, the path to ruin and death, which is probably not inaccurate. Um, but but I love that distinction. Uh, if you need something like alcohol or cocaine or other substances, then it's become a problem. If you can live without them and it's simply um, an addition to your world, to your sensory enjoyment, then that's something altogether different
0: yeah it's definitely a red a red a red i was gonna say red herring a red flag when you wake up in the morning and you feel like shit and you know that that having a drink will make you feel better yeah it's it's because it really does scientifically it does you're kind of easing your body out of withdrawal you're kind of letting it slope down so having you know one shot of whiskey in the morning listen to Dr. Phil, kids, um, will actually make you feel better, but it feels wrong. And I, I, I can tie this back in a kind of a meta way to your thing about emotions. Like you wake up with a hangover and you feel bad and that's okay. Right. Like revel in the badness of it. Take a cold shower, go to the gym, have some spicy food. But if you do feel bad the next morning, I find... Uh, your body will continue to lie to you. Your body's a sneaky little bastard. So you know what you need now is a Big Mac, right? So then you go and you eat something that you know is going to make you feel like shit and you already don't feel great. You might not be drinking in the morning, but to bring it back to naltrexone, to explain to people what it is, it's a pill, you oh. take it. There's different ways to take it. I uh, I got hold of some a couple of years ago. You can. I think there's one school of thought where you take it every day. And there's another school of thought where you just take it, um, I believe it's like an hour before you're going out drinking. And my first experience with it was very interesting because I think of myself as, you know, quite a heavy drinker. And I like to have a drink in my hand, and I like to be in bars and to sit at the bar and talk to the bartender. And then inevitably he's gonna make you more drinks. He's he's right there. And I had a cocktail, and an hour later I noticed that I'd only had one sip from it. Huh. And I would normally have had three cocktails and a shot in this space of time. And there's undoubtedly a degree of um, placebo effect going because you know you're taking this thing that is supposed to you know, cut this. So you don't get that dopamine rush from the first drink. The, the first drink of the day is no longer quite as pleasant. So therefore, you don't finish it. Yeah, and it's a generic, it's very cheap. Um, the reason I wanted to bring it up, it's and you mentioned it already, it it, it does operate in a similar fashion to Ozempic and uh all the other, I think there's a, a version of Ozempic called Moon Moonjack or Mountjack or something like that. Um, but apparently people who take Ozempic for weight loss, they in it, it cuts the feedback loop, the pleasure you get from alcohol. Uh they're drinking much less too. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's one of the effects that they've noticed on it, and and I just want to clarify: I'm not suggesting anyone should take any of these things without medical supervision. I think it's really important because, and I say this, is because I've become, to some degree, a health educator. Um, I try to stick within my wheelhouse and make sure people are clear. I I don't know what ozempic does. I've never taken it. I've never prescribed it. I've never, you know. So, but yes. Sh- Ultimately, that's what it does. And and that's, that's interesting. I mean, it really is a kind of funny thing when you step back and you realize that some of the things you do are not you doing it, right? In the sense, obviously, our brain is us. So I want to qualify this to some degree. It is you, but it's automatic, right? It just happens. And you're down several drinks or a bottle of whiskey from me, and, and you're like, oh, I didn't, I don't even, I didn't even know that I was going here, but here I am. And so I think that's a really important thing to change. I, you know, I don't when I tell people I don't really advocate for abstinence or moderation, that's the thing that I'm a little bit more concerned about, is this like when it just all of a sudden slides into somewhere we never intended to go. Um, And I'm concerned about for me and I'm concerned about for other people because it's very easy, especially in our industry, right? Because I used to get off at four o'clock in the morning and then I'd drink till 8 a.m. And then I'd go to sleep and then I'd wake up at 3.15 and I'd make it to my shift by four o'clock if I was lucky. And that was this sort of um, vampiric lifestyle that um, was not very good for me. And I'm glad that I was. I, I glad for some of the experiences I had because they were really fun. Um, but I'm also glad that I made changes in my life that I don't have to, you know, suffer some of the health um, problems that I did then.
0: Well, there's uh, actually just reminded me of a lovely story about uh, Shane McGowan uh, mm-hmm. that I saw. Because obviously the the radio waves have been filled with memories of this guy. By the way, he made it to 65. Remarkable.
1: Oh, my God. Lenny, yeah, him and Lemmy from Motorhead made it way farther than anyone would have suggested. Which, which is just to say that alcohol will not immediately kill you. You know, that's for sure.
0: Well, that's that's the problem. But anyway, it was <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland was in a pub or a hotel, and he was having a drink and fell into conversation with Shane McGowan, and they argued quite badly. And McGowan went back and joined his friends, and Kiefer Sutherland goes over to the bar, and stays and has a couple of drinks and a couple of drinks after that. And then uh, Shane McGowan came up to him and said, hey, I need to crash in your room at the hotel tonight. My friends have gone. I don't have a room. And for Sutherland's like, what the fuck, man? Like three hours ago, you were a complete dick to me. And Shane McGowan says, yeah, but I'm not that guy anymore. That was three hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's some deep wisdom in that. Yeah, like. Yeah you know if you're talking about cognitive myopia blackout drunk also um the lack of like like free will is kind of an illusion you know we are a bag of bones and blood and the great example is of course if somebody touches a hot plate they'll pull their fingers back yeah. and if you ask them why did you do that they'll say well it was hot so i pulled it back but the nerve sensation Uh, that it was hot had not reached their brain at that time. Yeah. We we operate on a lot of instincts. We can create habits, you can create a habit of drinking, you can create a habit of not drinking. Um, but this idea that we are in control, like if we alter our consciousness with drugs, you're well, you're not the same person. You're literally not the same person. You might be similar, you do look the same. But yeah. you are literally, uh, you know, as a bartender, you do get to see that, obviously. Yeah,
1: that's true. I mean, it is really remarkable to see the changes in people and their habits over time. You know, um, when somebody shows up at a bar when they're a regular every single night um, and you get to know them over time, it can be beautiful and challenging at the same time. I mean, the the funny thing is, I always say that... Um, if you, if you if you've known somebody for years and you call them a regular it's because they're not actually your friend right <laughs> because if they if they showed up that many times and they were your friend you would eventually just be like my friend and you'd invite them over to your house and you'd have you know the the oldest quote unquote regular that I had in my history as a bartender is my friend now and I don't call her a regular I never would um but but yeah there can be these challenging individuals um over time but but I also wanted to mention um totally, Beside the, the point, but um, I picked up this book recently on free will. I think it was—I uh, just pulled it up to be sure. I think it was Robert Sapolsky. I've not read it yet. Um,
0: oh right, yes, yes, yes. I've heard of
1: that book, and he's—he's he's saying it's really all free will is illusion. It's just kind of you just have to zoom out, right? So you think, oh, you made this choice, like I just made this choice to bring up this book in this moment, right? It's like, well, if you look at it from the last two minutes, yes, that's a choice. But if you look at it through the entire generations of your family, this was always going to happen because you were always being pushed towards this direction. So it's, it's an interesting way to look at it. I, I think there's a lot of philosophical inquiry there that is beyond uh, my ability to uh, share in this moment. But uh, it's worth kind of, it's a fun and interesting thing to think about. Um, like I said, I like to think. That's one one of the things I like to think
0: about. Well, we are, you know, another way to look at it is, is we're organic robots, and we can program ourselves. Like, we, we there, you know, the secrets to getting a good night's sleep are known to us now, thanks to the, the Andrew Hubermans of this world, right? right? And th- those facts are there. So if you have a good night's sleep, You will wake up and you will feel good. You'll feel happy, right? And then you get out of bed and like Admiral McGraven said, just make your bed. It's the first thing you can do in the gym. Get out there, see a bit of sunlight, um, move your body in some way, definitely. Uh, uh, You know, eat nutritiously. Don't drink much. And all this builds up to happiness. Yeah, you know, uh there's this thing that probably comes out in your, uh, your your training and the courses you've followed, but you, you are not your emotions. You're not your feelings, sure. you know, and being able to disassociate from that and say, OK, I'm feeling sad. Why am I feeling sad? Did I fuck up and I realize it on some level? Uh, did, a, did the puppy die? You know, sure. <laughs> all that are. It's it's also nice to think, well, why am I happy Yeah. right now? Why am I happy at this moment? And it's also nice to sort of temper your emotions. Like if you are absolutely having a day and you're killing it, you know, it's the best day ever. It's nice to think, you know, not every day is going to be like this. Yeah. Not every day is champagne and uh, elegant Manhattans. You know, <laughs> sometimes it's... Uh, it's, you know, still water and well, whatever. <laughs> Shitty Manhattans. Uh- <laughs>
1: True. Yeah, and it helps us to savor it more.
0: I mean, you know, the co-
1: I mentioned how the cocktail is an ephemeral art. And I think that that's one of the things that's beautiful about it. Everything's, everything's one big going out of business sale. You know what I mean? Mm. We don't, we're not going to last. Uh, or, you know, maybe you have a religious idea about it, and that's okay. Um, maybe you'll last as a spirit or as a soul or some other thing. I, I can't answer that question. But – but I can say that for now we know this body's not gonna last. And so savoring it and really understanding that um it's worth keeping running well, you know, just like your car or anything else you own, you know, and, and trying to make sure that you attend to it when it needs attention and and when it needs, when it's overheated, you know, or or in an emotional sense, maybe take it down a notch, maybe give it a break. Um, you know, I had I I worked with this incredible coach. Um, her name's Darlene Marshall, and um she's a, a positive psychologist. And um she we were we were having this moment where I was talking about these days where I felt kind of more depressed or I was having a, a harder day. Um, and she's like, that's just sort of your sails down day, you know, like oh, it happens with ships too, and it's, uh, sometimes you have sails up and you're you're going, and sometimes you take them down and you retreat to the, you know, to the, um, below the deck and you read a book, you know, and, or you, you know, tie some ropes or whatever sailors do. I don't, you can tell I'm not a sailor. Um, but, but you have to have those days of sails down as well. And that, that can be really powerful. And, um, and, and, and those can be the moments that set you up for full speed ahead too. So they're, they're not wrong, they're not bad. You know, I don't. It, it feels like many, in many ways, that that's kind of the the theme of our um, of our uh, discussion today. That you know, and I really li- like that because I think when I was a younger man, I never heard that, and so I hope, at the very least, that. Um, that when people hear this, they, it kind of makes them feel like, yeah, I can accept that this is who I am. And some days I'm not going to be a hundred percent and some days I'm going to feel upset and I just have to find a way to get through that. Or if I can't get help, I think that's a really great lesson to learn and um, something that I'm still learning, um, but it's been very valuable in my life.
0: Yeah. And knowing, I think over time, the behaviors, uh, the The food you eat, whatever liquids you put into your body, that they make you feel in a particular way. Like if you have a full on blowout, French fries, mashed potatoes and steaks, and you're like, oh, you feel bloated afterwards. It's like, I'm going to file that one away. You know, maybe next time you'll just have some sushi or you'll skip the potatoes or something like that. You'll know how to program yourself.
1: Yeah. One of the interesting things, too, though, is because so we often make the distinction. I heard you make it earlier. And and I do understand why the distinction is made of something having a physical effect on us. And sometimes um, we distinguish that. I don't know if that's exactly what you're doing between that and a mental effect. Right. So in a sense, when something has a physical effect like alcohol, it makes us do things or feel things. But when we, like, have an emotion, that um, is a mental effect. Um, And I I think there's a lot of complexity in there, so I don't want to oversimplify it. But to say that everything is sort of a physical thing, you know, like Mm. in our brain, it's all happening by the same mechanisms, right? It's all adrenaline and dopamine and all of these neurochemicals that are interacting in ways to keep us animated, and so, when people, you know, who drink non, who don't drink non-alcoholic drinks, and are afraid that they're going to lose some of the positive emotions that come with being out and having a drink with somebody, I remind them that anything you eat or drink is going to cause some change in you. It's just some are more extreme than others. And so, you, there are some studies to indicate, especially for people like me who were former heavy drinkers that when we have a non-alcoholic beer, it still kicks in. The dopamine still kicks in. Mm. So every night um, I drink two non-alcoholic beers, um, and it makes me feel good. It's a ritual. It's a much, much better ritual than the bottle of whiskey that I used to drink. You know, it's – though I – I times miss whiskey. It's a delicious, delicious thing. But um, there's so many good non-alcoholic beers now. And of the products, right? Like, I mean, there's an array of non-alcoholic products. Some are better than others, but because beer is already most, it depends on the, the, the brand obviously, but probably around 95% other things than alcohol um, it's easier to replicate. The, so, so you get these really complex, interesting craft, non-alcoholic beers and, and i really enjoyed those um i mean i enjoyed all but i think that's a really cool thing um and then non-alcoholic wine is getting better it was really really terrible i mean i worked as a sommelier at citronelle in dc many many moons ago and we had a bottle of a non-alcoholic um cabernet sauvignon which i it just tasted like sweet Sewage. I know it didn't taste like sewage. That's right. It just tasted like it was just sugary and bland. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't great. And I was like, wow, this is that's not alcoholic wine. And you know, fast forward to the the present, there's all these really delicious, especially like the bubbly ones. So I'm, you know, I have a, yeah. a, a substack um that I'll plug to. It's called Positive Damage, um, a newsletter. Um, and I'm writing an article on the non-alcoholic um sparkling wines for the for New Year's, because obviously, you know there's that's a really fun thing to do is to pop the cork and pour some bubbles and there's just such an array of options that are really delicious you know there's ones that are de-alcoholized wines um there's ones that are de-alcoholized wines plus they added teas and extracts to them and then there's sparkling teas and sparkling ciders and not the martinelli's you know which i it has those gold medals on it, but you can't really read where they won the gold medals from. so I don't think that they really did win any gold medals.
0: um maybe they're just out out of focus gold medals
1: <laughs> of focus so so yeah, I mean, so there's so many good ones. um there's even like these like I have a particular um like brand that I really like a producer that I like he's his name's York Geiger, and he's uh in the Swabian Alps, which sounds so. The Swabian jura, you know, it sounds so romantic in Germany. And uh he even forges for some of the ingredients in these sparkling ciders that he uh makes. They're really special, they're really unique, and um it's it's delicious. I work for a company called Shirley that makes a non-alcoholic wine, and I um they have some really good stuff that can be uh you know a little different than champagne. I mean, champagne is champagne, but um the bubbles and the carbonation in general just kind of adds weight and body to it. So it's it the
0: sense. non-alcoholic options now are amazing. So at my party last night, I had athletic brewing, the oh, rum wild IPA, which is, I think just about the best one out there. And I had a six pack of regular beers as well. And at the end of the evening, they were all gone. Oh, well, right. We only had, there was only one person at the party who was not drinking, uh, cause he was driving. He doesn't drink a lot anyway, but, so everybody else had the excuse that they could drink alcohol if they wanted to, and yet all these beers went. that that's kids, that's how good athletic brewing is. Use code Duff at checkout for 10% <laughs> off your first subscription. Go to ozempic.com <laughs> and use code Derek for 10% off your first subscription. Derek 10, Derek 10. <laughs> Derek 10. But we are a ways away with the old uh non-alcoholic spirits. And I think there's such incentive for people to um, to make true non-alcoholic spirits that are as good non-alcoholic versions of whiskey as uh, athletic brewing is of beer that there's no reason why I shouldn't get there in the end. Have you heard of the English uh, Professor Nutt who's yeah. developing? Yeah, it's very fascinating. He was the, uh, the drug czar of England. Uh, Until he pointed out very obvious things, like they should legalize some drugs, then they fired him. And now he's working on, I think he's brought out one of his compounds already. They will sell compounds to beverage manufacturers that essentially induce drunkenness without alcohol. And I think one of them's on the market already. Yeah, I've seen a lot of different ones and like hard ketones and things like
1: that. It's it's very interesting. I mean, there's obviously a lot of different ways that a person can um get high or get drunk. Um, and there's the functional beverages too, and and some of those are are maybe more effective than others. Functional, just for those who don't know, means that they have some kind of quote unquote health-giving property, but but sometimes it can be uh, a mind-altering, you know. So um, it could be CBD, right? Or it can mean even THC, um, which is from cannabis. Uh, both are from cannabis. And CBD tends to be not, uh, doesn't have as profound a physical, mental
0: effect. doesn't get charged. you high. Know, uh, people who are, you know, quite renowned in the cannabis world have told me that there's really no effect with CBD, that it's, you know, placebo, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Some of them, there's something called full spectrum that may have some teeth. I don't really, I'm cannabis expert. I'm not, but I do know that these functional things that some of them work and some of them don't in the way that they say they do. Obviously some will have like lion's mane mushroom. You're like, know, well, oh, that's great. That's going to give me more focus. But then you read the studies that actually exist out there and you need a whole lot more in a, over time. Um, but recently I had one by three spirits called nightcap and i made a sazerac out of it i called it a night caparac which there I we
0: love. go
1: still got uh, it got to have the puns ready um that's what being a bartender really is just having a, a ready ready supply stuff. of puns yeah um but the night caparac was really really good and it like immediately put me to sleep so I, I have to say it's called like it's it's like a calming one and it has all this stuff like ashwagandha and lemon balm and i'm pretty sure it's the lemon balm because I think lemon balm is the real deal. Like, I never knew that, but that stuff will put you to sleep. Um, and various other compounds that are good for, theoretically, for sleep. But it, it worked for me. I was very, very sleepy afterwards.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is there is that thing that the non-alcoholic spirits that are out there, there was a lot of money chasing them for a long time there. And almost all of them are privately owned, so we don't really know if they're selling as well as people say they are. This is obviously prime season. Everyone's going into Boisson, getting a bottle for, you know, drunk Uncle Andy uh, or, you know, sober sober Auntie Jane. Along with my book. Along with Derek's book, Mindful Drinking, and his forthcoming course with the NASM. And don't forget to subscribe to his Substack. stack. Uh, Derek 10 for 10% off your first rituals <laughs> order. <laughs> Uh yeah, but then the reorder isn't happening. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think that the there's a lot the the non-alcoholic spirits are are a greater challenge because you gotta you gotta do some things to them to make them taste in a way. And and sometimes you have to just accept that they're gonna taste differently. Um that's one thing that I try to set people's expectation with is that you're going to be able to make a good drink, but that drink might not be the same as uh, a drink with whiskey, you know, even if it says quote unquote whiskey, which is why some people really prefer non alcoholic spirits that are completely different. They're not analog, right? So they're not like a, a gin or a whiskey or quote unquote tequila. Um, and I, I appreciate that because I think that that does make sense. They, these are completely different. But at the same time, some of them work well as analogs in the sense that they can make a perfectly fine. Old-fashioned, or margarita, or daiquiri—they're not uh, going to taste exactly the same, but you can make a good one. And there's—I mean—that was one thing I did in my book—is I tried to talk about some of the ways that you could, um, you could actually add things like piquancy, the bite. You can add um, texture to it. You can add intensity of flavor. So, I think an important thing that I use a lot, like, is very simple—is like adding things like apple cider vinegar Mm. right? a little spoonful of that can add some of the complexity that you lose because it is a byproduct of alcohol then you have like i'll add aquafaba or some people do egg whites either one that adds that texture to it and salt tincture can also add Mm. some for instance i had a cocktail called the pinch hitter which is really just lemonade um which is kind of funny because that's what we were railing against but um People who just have lemonade for their non alcoholic options, but by adding apple cider vinegar, salt tincture, um, aquafaba to it, and ginger syrup, all of a sudden it it actually is a very complex, interesting drink and a sort of prototypical sour.
0: Yeah, there's great interest in the non alcoholic spirits, but I think, like, any somebody once described alcohol as. It's a party, uh, but it, you know, you, you have to bring the party. It doesn't bring anything else to the party. You're wherever you go, there you are. These are not magical things yet. You have to enhance them. But maybe that enhancement is part of the enjoyment. If you invest a bit of time and effort and thought in I hate the phrase, but crafting a better non-alcoholic beverage. Um, all things being considered, you should enjoy it more in the same sense that you should enjoy. A meal you've cooked yourself. Yeah,
1: that's that's exactly right, and and it's there's some really delicious ones, and and there's obviously people who are like, well, uh, I don't if it doesn't have alcohol, then I don't want it, and in which case, I would say that you know, salad doesn't have alcohol, and a Big Mac doesn't have alcohol, and all these things, you know, like <laughs> we should treat it for what it is and enjoy it on its own, you know, but obviously it is analog, but at the same time, it is different, and and I, I really. I've enjoyed what you're saying is, is learning how to do it differently in a way that kind of supports my own tastes. So, I've even made a, a non alcoholic martini. My favorite drink, my favorite cocktail was a dry martini 50 50, orange bitters, lemon peel, discuss, you know, express discard, um, a very um, highfalutin martini. Um, and I've found a way to do it for me. With non-alcoholic products too. And I really enjoy it. And that I think is surprising to some people because they usually think about it as merely like juice and sugar. But there are ways to do it. There's a a vermouth. Uh actually they call themselves a but they're like a vermouth that, that's really good called Roots Divino. Have you ever tried that?
0: I have seen it. I don't remember trying it.
1: It's good. It's uh it's a Greek company, they make liqueurs as well they make a mastica liqueur um and they make these non-alcoholic sort of vermouth they have a rosso and a bianco and they're they're awesome um so i use that and i kind of reverse it because the gin even though it conveys the juniper is a little thinner than actual gin the non-alcoholic gin um so i will use monday non-alcoholic gin but i'll do two parts of the vermouth in one part of the gin, um, and then I add some apple cider vinegar. I add a little bit of olive juice to it, um, which actually really you know adds salt, adds uh, a little bit of weight and texture to it. Um, and orange bitters. And now I have non-alcoholic bitters as well. That all the yes. bitters. really good company.
0: Yeah, top stuff. Well, look, Dry January is coming up. There's going to be a lot of partying in between now and then, so people should pick up. Your book and check out your Substack. Um, for somebody who wants to uh, not drink for a day, a week, uh, maybe all of January. What would be your top tips for day one? Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I think that the 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 most
1: important thing to do is do some reflection before it happens. Um, so let's start with day negative two or something. Um, because I think that those, what you can do is you can sit down and reflect on how you want to feel, right? So what? why are you doing this, you know, is a good question. Because I I, I do appreciate the trend and I think that that's cool. But if, it, if the reason is only because my friends are doing it, then it's not really, it's not going to, you're not going to stick to it. But if, if the reason is because I really want to see how... I feel without alcohol, and 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 then reflect on well, what do you think is going to happen? How do you think you're going to feel? Those are always really good exercises to do. is to sit down beforehand, but then on day one to make sure that you've planned activities uh, that will support what you're doing. So, as you said, I think there's plenty of time to go to non-alcohol, you know, get non-alcoholic drinks and athletic beer at bars and stuff like that. But maybe day one is the day that you. Um, you know, go for a hike, right? I mean, nature has a wonderful effect on our mentality. And um, you know, a long hike can be semi-challenging, and you know, you're not quite running a marathon, that's a really good thing to do. And and obviously you have to cater it to what you like. If you hate going outdoors, then that's not the right answer for you. But um, I think that's really good. I think getting support from friends, so if you even though you shouldn't do it just because your friends are doing it, if your friends are doing it too, saying, "Hey, why don't we be accountable to each other? Why don't we share what's happening and how we can do it?" and and maybe on that day one we get together and we play Uno instead of going to the pub. You know, like I play a lot of Uno now because my son likes it, so that's my example. Uno might not be the game for you. Maybe you want to play Fortnite. I don't know. Like whatever the hell you want to do. I but- ask
0: your doctor if Uno is right for you.
1: Exactly, I get too competitive, so I don't know if it is. Um, It might actually be bad for me, but but I think that like yeah, finding those those activities on day one that'll help kind of keep you oriented. Maybe go to a movie a movie theater that you know doesn't serve alcohol. You know things like that would be really a positive way to do it. And then as time goes along, look at that acronym: the replace, avoid, temper, and illicit help. You know where you can replace it. Like if you enjoy a nightly whiskey, maybe the night caparac is uh, is an example of something you can drink instead. Um, if you know that you have a wedding on a certain day, you know, maybe you give yourself an off night too. Maybe say, all right, look, I'm going to take one week off, but on Sunday night, I'm going to a wedding and there's no way they're not going to be able to drink. Fine. You're setting the rules. Don't worry about it. Just enjoy that night. And then the next day, start again um you're not losing anything i think that that's those are all really helpful ways to
0: go about it um and in, I, activities I, in particular yeah. cuz it's amazing how much free time you have if you stop drinking alcohol <laughs> like holy shit like and money yeah <laughs> um so there's
1: also dryish january so there's a um an there's an app called sunnyside that um i did have an affiliate link at some point but i don't know what it is so i can't tell you right now but they they um it's like you follow this program and they send you texts and check yeah so it's like having somebody to support you i mean i think it could be really useful if that is helpful to you you know so so i think that like that's another way that's that illicit help right so just kind of looking at that acronym and finding different ways to replace, avoid, temper or, or or get help. I think those can those can be definitely ways to support your goals. But but also go easy on yourself. You know? Just remember that it's okay. You're setting the rules, do it at your pace, do it the way you want. Um, and don't feel like you have to do it the exact way that somebody else does it.
0: Yeah. Now that's a great acronym, right? I find if i want a drink on that first day or the second day or the first week i i go and pour myself some kind of drink not alcoholic but you know and it's silly like my body's like no phil what you need is whiskey so and i've got a glass of heavily carbonated soda stream water it does the trick there's yeah. lots lots of decaf is consumed in the duff household <laughs> uh, in january and you know sitting with that feeling like okay I want to drink, um, but I'm not drinking alcohol today. So, well, that sucks. On the other hand, if I have one drink, and I say this from great experience, I will want another. So if I'm going to feel like things suck, I might as well not have the first drink.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's fair. And and there's other things. So, you know, I tend to think that the the ways that we um, use alcohol are around you know celebrating around um connecting with other people sometimes around you know religious experiences um and connoisseurship too so if you're like a connoisseur and that's your thing you really like and I know that's you and I we both really enjoy like an excellent scotch or something like that then it might be that you channel that into something else for the month so for instance tea tea is you can get so nerdy about tea. About tea,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and you're thinking, oh, well, I like scotch, so I won't like it. But then there's like Lao Tseng Sushong tea, which is uh, dried over pine fires, and it's like smoky and incredible tasting. It would blow you away. Or Pu'er tea, which is like the aged tea. I, I once had a pre-Mao Pu'er tea, which was an aged green tea from before, or aged, I might have been a black tea, before Mao came to power in China, which is... Whoa. 50s i think i don't i don't know my chinese history that well so that that that's a way that you can get into and get real nerdy about it so so there's lots of different ways to to kind of approach it if depending on what you usually use alcohol for
0: yeah i mean i i always it's it's very nice even if we're both working from home all day long you know at the end of the working day sit down in the living room with my wife and have a drink and that's that's the ritual. Um, initially, it's kind of, well, you know, it sucks, even though athletic brewing is good, this is a thing. But the ritual is actually worth much more that's right. than that little bit of, uh, or in the case of our martinis, quite a lot of alcohol yeah. that you ingest. Yeah, I think those rituals
1: are really important. They're bonding moments, they're moments of connection, they're moments of competency where we feel like we can do this well, right? Like we can make this... Drink a certain way. Um, and those can, this can still exist without alcohol. I mean, everything in the world that alcohol does, it turns out could be theoretically replaced by something else, even getting dizzy and throwing up. You can find other ways to do that if you really like that. So I think that ultimately, if your goal is to avoid alcohol, then there's many, many things that can help along the way.
0: Yeah those are brilliant tips for day 1. Well you've been very generous with your times Eric it's been a lot of fun actually. We've never hung out this much uh ever. <laughs> and people can find you online where at positive damage
1: or they can go Instagram if they like positive damage inc and again my substack is positive damage substack.com. So those are those are the where I spend most of my time saying things, doing things. I guess on my website, just will point you to you know some articles and and books. But um, the Substack and the Instagram is where I I stay more about what I'm up to as of late. So uh, yeah, please check it out. I really appreciate you including me in this discussion, um, and I really value a lot of things that you said. It's going to keep you thinking for a couple of days here.
0: Well, that is very fun. Uh, your book, Mindful Drinking, in the shops. Uh, is there an audiobook version?
1: Not yet, but uh, if there is, maybe
0: I'll get you to read it. If, yeah. <laughs> You've got a deep, round voice, mate. You could totally do it yourself. Well, Derek, you're a fantastic guy. I wish you a happy festive uh, holiday season. And uh, I think that's it, right? Thank you.